Hey everybody, you are listening to Canary Cry Radio. I am your best buddy, Basil. And this is Gons. Welcome to episode number 153. And this is kind of weird. This is Canary Cry Radio. I don't been think a, we... Been a while. Been a while, do huh, we even Gons? Do, do we do this show still, or what, what's the deal? <laughs> well, you're not the only one asking that question. Uh, we've, we've, we thank you very much for all your messages, and we've replied to as many of them as we can. Um, you may have noticed it's, what has it been, a year? More than a year. Year and a half? The last episode we published was on October, so not quite a year, on, but... On October in 2020? Yeah, October 29th, oh, yeah. 2020 was the last time we published an episode on okay. the RSS feed. Yeah, so we've put out two episodes in a year and a half now. <laughs> <laughs> so take that. Um, but yes, uh, I guess uh, for those who may have missed that, I'm sure we talked about it. I don't remember. October seems like a lifetime ago, but uh, here we are again. And it's we haven't not been working. In fact, we've been working very diligently and hard and often. Uh, if you have not checked out Canary Cry News Talk yet, ye, that is where most of our energy goes these days. And honestly, uh, I, I don't know about you, Gons, but I'm not necessarily sorry about it. No, I think that the shows that we did without a guest on Canary Cry Radio throughout its existence became canary cry news talk and then it's evolved even beyond that where we're tackling all of the issues and stories of the day or the week uh we're bringing the biblical worldview uh, but we're also having a lot of fun doing it and you know trying to trying to make people laugh and and having a good time because uh, otherwise it's a really dark place out there right now (laughs) Yes, the world is a different place uh, than it was even since, uh, you know, 2019 or January 2020 when uh, we put when we completely ceased being consistent here on Canary Cry Radio. But, um, you know, I I know that that's interesting that you say that about the solo episodes or the duo episodes of Canary Cry Radio, because a lot of people uh, have told us that those are their favorite episodes of Canary Cry Radio. Of course, we love our guests. We're so thankful to our guests for sharing their knowledge and research with us. Um, but there's just something so fun about just doing a show with my buddy Gons. And if you <laughs> and there also was some resistance uh, to a certain crowd within Canary Cry radio listenership, some resistance to hopping on over to Canary Cry News Talk. Now, uh, if you if you remember, we've been doing news talk since about 2016 or so uh, started out as a half hour show once a week where we kind of sped through some fun robot news or something. Um, but if you don't know, now you know, it has sort of developed into a oftentimes three or four hour uh, journey through the news of the day. And here's the thing. I get it. A lot of people are resistant to like, ah, more news. Oh my gosh. I have so much news. Who, who wants the news? But it's not just the normal stuff. Gons and I, we read through 200 articles a week. We bring you what we believe the canary, well, we as canary cry, uh, what we believe is the most important, relevant, um, 
news in the context of the things that we've been talking about for almost 10 years now. And so it, have we actually hit 10 years? No, we're over nine years. Yeah, we're, we're, we're coming up on 10 years. So it's the same uh, canary cry worldview, um, same canary cry attitude, um, but in a different format than you may be familiar with, even if you tuned in to Canary Cry News Talk before the pandemic. Let's be honest. We started doing this uh, at the beginning of quarantine and, you know, we just followed where the Lord led us and it led us to doing uh, Canary Cry News Talk in this new format. We do it three times a week. It's an incredible amount of content that we're putting out over there. And so we hope you understand that that has sort of taken the majority of our energy over the past year and a half. But that being said, we do still occasionally interview people and we will be putting out, um, not going to promise any sort of frequency, but we will be putting out interviews uh, on here, Canary Cry Radio. We'll also be posting this on the Canary Cry News Talk feed. So if you're already a Canary Cry News Talker, you're welcome. And uh, also, if you haven't done it yet, check out uh, Canary Cry Radio. It's a good show. Yeah. And the. Typical Canary Cry News Talk, as you said, goes from anywhere between two and a half hours at the shortest to, I think we've had one that neared five hours, which is crazy, three times a week. And uh, because we are skipping out on uh, the July 5th, which is the day that this is being published for Canary Cry News Talk, we thought we would publish our conversation, or at least my conversation with Dr. Future, Mike Bennett. Uh, because it goes over three hours or so, and it's yeah. uh, one of those conversations that we've been sitting on for a little bit, but I think it, uh, it's time we release this conversation. One thing to note is that the uh, YouTube channels have gone through some issues. The mm. Canary Cry Radio YouTube channel has been shut down by YouTube. It got terminated, and as of this recording, uh, Face Like the Sun was basically <laughs> pronounced dead, uh, but uh, I think the Lord worked on somebody's heart over there while reading an appeal that I made, and it's back up for now. But that's not going to last. Um, and it's back, it's back up, but you cannot post or stream from it. Right. So right. It, it is sort of like here it is for a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> Download it. Like save your data, save your content. Right. Because we're gonna delete it later. Yeah. <laughs> here's your opportunity. Here's your here's your exit opportunity. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, on the Face Like the Sun YouTube channel, as well as the Canary Cry Radio channel, we were interviewing people. And we actually have about five interviews that we've been sitting on to actually move from the YouTube conversation to the proper RSS feed here. And uh, so and we switched it up because the Dr. Future uh, interview is going to be moved up. Um, no, you know, not for any re- other reason than, you know, it's just a really good conversation. Nothing against the other conversations we've had, uh, but it's just a, a timely uh, interview that I think needs to be published. So yeah, uh, just keeping in mind that, yeah, we have other interviews that we're sitting on that hopefully we can get out there in some kind of <laughs> appropriate time yep. dilation. 
So we will be attempting to get the time dilation. We'll be attempting to get those uh, out as soon or as frequently as we possibly can. Um, but if you're an old timer Canary Cry radio listener and maybe you gave Canary Cry News Talk a chance a few years ago, I would suggest checking it out again. Not going to say guaranteed you'll love it, but there's a lot of people who love it and Gons. Uh, you and I love it. So uh, if you could, as a personal favor, just uh, check out Canary Cry News Talk again. You can find it on any podcatcher, uh, as well as a flurry of uh, different streaming services, video services online, and a great way to get connected with the whole Canary Cry News Talk infrastructure uh, is to head to canarycry.party. You heard me correctly. Canarycry.party, a real URL that you can visit and find all the links to get your Canary Cry News Talk fix. Um, I think that's it, Gons. I do want to say this conversation is one between yourself and Dr. Future. Of course, Dr. Future being sort of uh, the father, one of the fathers or grandfathers. Eh, just kidding, Dr. Future. Of, uh, <laughs> of sort of our fringy independent community. Uh, we love him very much. We look to him as a uh, a type of mentor or uh, role model, and we hope you enjoy this. Gonzi you spent a lot of time with him during this interview. I'm very jealous, uh, but I'm going to have a good time listening. Yeah, we talked about his book, Two Masters and Two Gospels, Volume 1, and uh, we, we really got into America's PSYOP to build a spiritual industrial complex. Oh my gosh. Yeah, and it's it's quite uh, disturbing at times, but also I think it's good to fill in some gaps, connect some dots to things people already know and and given what we've seen in the last year with the lockdowns and the the pandy and all that kind of stuff, I think uh, uh, it's a good history lesson on how the evangelical church specifically in the United States was weaponized and i mm. think there's a little bit of that going on today as well there's a lot of parallel that uh again disturbing at times informative at other times um but also you know getting into some uh, individual characters that uh you may or may not have heard of that have been influential in the evangelical church and uh as well as talking about gk chesterton and his view on capitalism and socialism and something called distributism which I'm becoming more of a distributist, Basil, as I go uh -oh. along. It's, uh, I, I'm, I'm seeing a lot of uh, sense in what G.K. Chesterton was talking about nearly, or I guess about 100 years ago, while he was seeing the rise of the uh, Industrial Revolution taking over uh, some of the, you know, the, the lives and, and really the cities and everything of people. And uh, it's pretty much continued on since then. And uh, now that we're on the precipice of the great reset and the the agenda 2030 un sustainable development agenda and the esg initiative and all these types of things uh, it's a good time to reflect back on what some of the people 100 years ago were saying when a lot of that was starting in earnest so mm. it's a good conversation dr future has done tons of research on it i recommend the book let's just get into it because it's, it's it's a lot it's a lot to, to take in Okay, sounds good. And remember to go to canarycry.party. Canarycry.party. Okay, Dr. Future, let's go.
uh, wanted to start out by seeing how you're doing. How have you been? It's been a long time since you've been on the show. Um, we know you've been writing books upon books, but uh, just, just wanted to see how you've uh, been holding up over there. Well, you know, I have been waiting for eternity to get back on this show. <laughs> and that's why I've hounded you forever. And, and you've shown interest and then you get busy with obviously lesser important things than me. But <laughs> obviously, anyway, you have been things like producing real content and things. So I'm just glad to talk to all the Canary Cry audience. They've always been so kind to me like you have uh, look past my faults, giving me benefit of the doubt. And if there was ever a time that I need them to give me the benefit of the doubt and to know that I have godly motives, these are the days. Yeah, Because this is the time everybody needs to fly their flags, put your cards on the table, decide who you're with, and you know, circle that and narrow that focus to Jesus, and then there's everybody else. Yep. And so everybody really needs to let everybody know what they're really about. And we're going through days where people are reassessing who they'll affiliate with, who they'll do. I mean, it's like what Jesus talked about, you know, in the New Testament. He says, you're going to lose fathers, sons, daughters, mm -hmm. but then you're going to gain other ones here and in the kingdom to come. The last five years, I have lived that in spades. Yeah. I, 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 mean, I, I often think about that. a ton of people who support me. A ton of people. But you know what? I've met some new friends who are going the same path I am. Yeah. And they love Jesus. And they have similar altruistic goals. And I thank the Lord for that. But it's still a lonely walk. Yeah. But, you know, you can take the other path of just trying to be a people pleaser and try to get as large a crowd behind you as you can. And don't say anything controversial. Don't make people uncomfortable, you know, and you can get a big crowd, be a very positive message. But are you accomplishing anything for the kingdom? Right. When yeah. this all burns? Yeah. You don't try to pick fights unnecessarily. And, yeah. you know, no rebel without a cause. Right. But there's a lot of cause of right things to be rebellious about even just within the Christian community. Yeah. And so, you know, that's where I'm at. And that's why I'm just so thankful. Somebody who doesn't even have to agree with me. And I'm talking about you and your audience, but will give me the time of day to make my case because I, I'm of the, the camp that, you know, if you can say it in 10 words, why not say it in a hundred? So, you know, um, I always, it takes me a while to sort of spit out where my mind has been going. But I feel more certain than ever that I'm on a surer path, you know, the path of the cross and the path of the gospel message. But it sure rubs a whole lot of Christian people the wrong way. Yeah. No, and I'm I just happy to you. accept with the fact that um, a lot of people who I really loved and respected, I'm learning more about what really makes them tick and it breaks my heart. But I made a commitment to Jesus. And so I got to follow him and everybody else is going to make their own decisions. So right. I want just thank you for letting me be here. Sorry for the long winded. No, not at answer, all. But, um, you know, I got a lot more long winded things to say. Yeah. <laughs> and that's why the book writing is good. And, you know, I have a blog. It's called the Two Spies Report on WordPress. And I originally started doing that so people wouldn't think I was dead <laughs> when I went to underground writing the world's longest book series with the Holy War Chronicles, which this this book series right now, this trilogy that I'm doing called Two Masters, Two Gospels, sort of preempted that because I I was you know convinced by some other close friends there was a sense of urgency mm. to this message. So I, I did the Two Spies Report, let people know it's still out there. It was originally meant to be brief commentaries on current event things, you know, maybe placeholders on my thoughts. I can go back and write a book later. Well, they turned out to be about as long as my book. So I've told I have the world's longest post on here, but these are momentous days. 
I mean, the last, well, five years, but four to six months in particular, we are at momentous decisions that we have to make over what we're about. And there are far reaching consequences. Yeah. And they're extremes. This is not like fine print, fine points. These are fundamentally what Jesus is about, what his priorities are. And we have to decide and figure out what it is and where we stand. So I've been a busy beaver yeah. writing a lot of stuff at the Two Spies Report. It's named that because of Joshua and Caleb, mm. uh, which sort of it's a Christian minority report. Right. You know, and the theme is um, just because a minority of believers have a view doesn't mean necessarily wrong. Yeah. So I make it a forum for stuff that I know rubs against the grain of the Bible Belt people yeah. where I live and come from. Yeah, so, it's very you cool. know, it's stuff that make people uncomfortable. If you like to be uncomfortable, like laying on a bed of nails, that's sort of what it's like reading <laughs> uh, my blog. But it's well intended. So anyway, but the, the book, I know is what we're going to be talking about here, because um, if I had to die tomorrow, uh, I always second guess everything I do, but I have to say in this book, I don't regret one sentence in this book. Mm. I completely stand behind it. We all should grow, and hopefully we'll do things better over time, and I, hopefully I will. This was, this was my first solo effort that wasn't done as part of some kind of you know combination with others. Um, but as of today, I don't regret a word of it. I believe every word that's in it. Cool. So let's dig into that because the book is called Two Masters and Two Gospels, Volume 1. The teaching of Jesus versus the leaven of the Pharisees in talk radio and cable news. And, uh, you know, I was seeing some smatterings of people calling you a communist and socialist and all this kind of stuff. And we'll dig into that. But I, I was prompted to read through the whole thing just because of the response I was seeing. I was like, well, what exactly is Dr. Future saying that's causing people to start calling him a communist? Um, and I got through it. But um, it seems to me that. Pretty straightforward. It's in the title, uh, but the book seems to be parsing out one's allegiance between a genuine faith in Jesus Christ versus allegiance to the constructed faith by government propagandists who use Christianity in America to create a generation, multiple generations of loyal citizens to the state. And the, I think the things you found to back up that concept that, hey, they've been using Christianity to back up or, or to create a generation, multiple generations of loyal citizens to the state is pretty alarming to me. But why do you think the difference, it's a, it's a very, uh, it's, it's a difference that I think people don't recognize, but why do you think it's such an important difference for our generation and the future of the church? Well, you know, I, I really need to clarify what is the main emphasis of the book, because it really is not... Uh, at all to issue a warning about the state itself. Sure. Although we should be wary of any institution. Yeah. Uh, including the institutional church, I might say. Mm -hmm. um, rather, my main emphasis is that the last five years, I'll just say, we call it the Trump era, whatever you want to say, have shown to me, as I get it into the beginning of the book, that the, the fact that my fellow Bible-believing evangelical Christians that I interact with uh, at my church here, right here in the Bible Belt, Nashville, or my family or friends and online, uh, normally use the talking points in terms that I know originated recently on talk radio or cable news right? or their online counterparts, rather than the words of Jesus, the Father, the prophets, the apostles, on all the controversial public issues of the day. And believe me, I talk with them on all of it. 
but I find they're using these talking points that I know when they were issued and where they got them from. <laughs> and I find that curious yeah. that they're not saying, well, Jesus said, blah, blah, blah. So I assert this is because that they are saturated with this ideology all week long mm -hmm. on their commutes back and forth. They're a captive audience in the car, hearing talk radio. They have the radio on sometimes at work, sometimes subliminally low. And then they get home after hearing it again on the way home and they turn on cable news and they're eating dinner. And even on Sunday mornings before they head to church. And you contrast that to less than an hour of a sermon they have each week. Mm -hmm. And at a good church, you might get an occasional sermon about the Sermon on the Mount or Kingdom of Heaven. And so it's an issue of, of oversaturation. And so um, this, this alternative view that comes through these channels of strangers uh, directly into the skulls of my fellow Christians, it normally makes certain presuppositions about society and values that I know are not biblically supported. Mm. You know, even though they, they're, they're spoken of well by a lot of Christian leaders and celebrities, I know they're not biblically supported. You know, if I had to throw a blanket over them, I would say that you could associate them with what I call wealth class values. Mm. The kind of values of the wealthy, the idle rich, big business, corporations, banking, how they look at other people, what their value is, uh, what we should value in society. You know, if 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 you grew up watching the Beverly Hillbillies and saw Mr. Drysdale, you know, the banker mm -hmm. or Thurston Howell the third on Gilligan's Island or even Mr. Burns on The Simpsons. It's the kind of values you hear them talking about. Mm. How did they value other people? You know, what were, were their values in society? It, it, it holds the poor in contempt mm -hmm. and automatically assumes that they're lazy and an exploitative burden. They look at the immigrant stranger as distrusted and only worthy to be economically exploited. That's all they want is cheap labor, but they don't want them for anything else but just cheap labor. And then it venerates the businessman and business itself as the saviors of society. Right. And because of that, because they are the geniuses that just work magic in society, you know, and that's why a lot of them are invited to speak at our pulpits uh, between that and like Delta Force people. You know, they're the celebrities that come and speak at our pulpits, write the big best-selling books in Christian circles. Um, and so it, it venerates this businessman and business as the savior society and thus seeks to privatize all societal functions. Yeah, because obviously things will be better for all of us if we just turn the keys over to them. You know, it sees government as the enemy of everyone. And I know I spent my time in the future quake many times criticizing the government. And I have said elsewhere that, you know, in a few years in future quake, I walked through the libertarian garden mm -hmm. and I saw some real flowers in there. I saw flowers like right of free association. Um right of non-coercion, these kind of things. And they're, they're real values that add to my Christian experience. But then as I dug in further down there, I found a lot of weeds mm -hmm. down there, which were no more than Darwinian laws of the jungle. Yeah. In fact, I would say not only are they not Christian and immoral, they really even counteract the idea of civilization. It's not really a civilization that lives the way they say. It's really a jungle. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the, the, the consistent theme, and I know you've seen this in my book, this constant argument that government is endemically the enemy of everyone because it taxes them, 
You know, although the big business people like all the credit kickbacks they get and contracts and other corporate welfare, they like that. But um, in, in the fact that regulations are applied that would limit their impact on other people from defrauding them or polluting their neighbor's property or working their workers to death for starvation wages and dangerous working conditions, which is why unions are the are the devil, too. You know. All of this has a threat of potentially shaving a sliver off of their windfall profits. Therefore, to them, it's an existential threat. And their goal was to convince all of us it's our threat as well, too. Right. Now, I will say, and I, I know you know, that I make this part exhaustively uh, clearly in, in the book, is that all of this is completely counter to the values of God in the Bible, both right. in the Old Testament, the Gospels, and the Epistles. Mm-hmm. And I painstakingly document all of that in wall-to-wall verses and passages that make it consistent. I also tie it to a um, biblical analogy of the gospel era antecedents of the religious right uh, called the Pharisees Mm -hmm. in the gospel era time. And I carefully document all of their positions and values that come up in the gospels about what they thought about the poor, what they thought about how to relate to government, all these other kind of things. And all of them match up with the wealth class values, including having a selective piety at times, being very conspicuous when they do an occasional charity to somebody. But yet they don't want any kind of broad economic assistance to the people that they keep under their thumb, which is what Jesus said explicitly. He says they, they burden them with all these burdens. They don't lift a finger to take the burden off. And this is why they saw Jesus as their arch enemy. Particularly, and I think this is the thing people need to understand, what Jesus saw is one of the big problems. Obviously, he came primarily to this world to die on the cross and provide eternal life for all of us. Okay, mm-hmm. and that, Nothing was going to sway him from that, preaching about the kingdom of heaven. But his first public act when he showed up in Jerusalem was to tear down the den of thieves in the temple. Which I found out through my study of history, that whole racket was being run by the high priest, mm-hmm. Annas. It was the religious institutional people running the economic racket, and his sons were running it. And, and, and he knew, Jesus knew, that when you hit religious people in their pocketbook, that's when they'll take notice and start coming after you. And they did. And he intended for that, to show the difference of him from them. I also didn't realize he did it a second time. That was one of his very last acts, which is what triggered them to decide we got to kill him now. Yeah. He's hitting our economic racket system. They were like TV evangelists of their day, Mm -hmm. but they were in partnership with big business. And that's when they immediately met and said, we got to take this guy out. Yeah. Now, encounter the government authority at the time, Rome, was not really Jesus' real enemy. In fact, they looked for outs, except, you know, they had this sort of relationship with the religious institution. You know, they didn't want to stir the apple cart, but that wasn't the real enemy. But it was the institutional religious fundamentalist, along with the conservative wealthy traditionalists, the Sadducees, and the wealth class were the ones who saw themselves as the real enemy of Jesus. And that is still true today, as I lay out in the history in my book section. Yeah. You know, and that's why they turned to alternative to Jesus, like the sadistic but very patriotic Jesus Barabbas. It made it very, very clear in the scripture. They had a choice between two, and they chose this guy, and he was, he was really a, a violent sadist, self-absorbed uh, um, um, zealot, 
but they chose him because he was very patriotic. Mm-hmm. And him and his zealot, you know, henchmen offered to them to make Israel great again. Yeah. And that's what they cared than the simple message of Jesus Christ. So some things never really change. Right. I, I think I, yeah, I, the wording when I said state, that probably wasn't the proper word. I, I'm glad you parsed that or at least uh, just, you know, corrected me on that because, yeah, I, this, well, certainly what we'll get into, you know, we'll, we'll talk about some of the ways the government and the, the church work together <laughs> in creating an environment that sort of garnered a, a distraction from the true gospel message. Um, which in is, fact, I would, I would go so far as call it another gospel. Another gospel. Yeah, because it's absolutely. not even on the same foundation. The foundation values about, you know, the people on the margins, the poor, the poor in spirit. You, you go back and look at the Beatitudes mm-hmm. and put a minus sign in front of everything. And that's the uh, other gospel that right. I'm talking about. And it's become the main uh, thing of Christian talk radio. Take the Beatitudes, put a minus sign in front of it, and that's the value system you see on that or their cable television programs mm-hmm. and things like that. Yeah. That's th- why he called it he called it the leaven of the Pharisees. Right. And that's what the ideology, and it was always a wealth-centered thing. And in fact, at the beginning of the book, I put a, um, a verse out of the Bible to help really frame this discussion because it said that the Pharisees hated Jesus because they were lovers of money. Yeah. Yeah, And once you understand and pot and think about it, they were lovers of money, they were already ingratiated to big business, they had a racket that they were running, that explains why they were so appalled and felt threatened by Jesus. And yeah. they still feel that way today. Yeah, I think your, your analogy with the Pharisees to the modern evangelical conservative arm, at first... When you just hear that, especially if you are conservative or evangelical or you identify as one, you you sort of think, no, 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 that's not possible. Mm-hmm. But then uh, you you laid it out, you laid out the case, and it's pretty compelling because it's both it's the religious institution, um, basically, yeah, preaching another gospel, as you said. And uh, when you lay it out that way, and you lay out the examples, it's pretty hard to deny. Uh, I think what people tend to forget is that jesus uh is not really uh, he it doesn't mean if you if you reject those thoughts or you reject those identifications it doesn't mean you're a liberal democrat left-wing progressive you know all those two-party thinking you know the right-wing left-wing type of thought i think people fall into that way too much and because you criticize one side you're automatically identifying with the other side and that's not the case either i think people uh, have to recognize that th- there is like a that is a dualistic t- type of thing that right. I think Jesus came to expose both sides, if you will. Um, and I think and he, that's what that's the picture you saw with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, right? Right. Exactly. You know, they they were arguing a lot, but they weren't even asking the right questions to begin with. Yeah. You know, you had two corrupt groups fighting, and they you know they wanted him to pick sides. They wanted him to, you know, like over the resurrection stuff, they wanted him to pick sides. And and Jesus may have been okay and had cover had he chosen to pick sides. Mm-hmm. Paul was presented in the same situation. Paul decided that the time was right because they were going to tear him apart at the time. And and he wasn't called to die on the cross just yet like like Jesus was. Right. And and he went on and said something about the resurrection. And you saw the Pharisees and the Sadducees go at each other. Mm-hmm. So this false duality. Basically, what it says is, is that 
you're putting something else in your bucket to carry around water for somebody else other than Jesus. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned the beginning of the show about these people who are saying, well, well, Mike's speaking about the poor and how the poor ought to be looked after and how they can get exploited in the in the courts or in the marketplace or the immigrant stranger that talked about. Well, you know, I have an opinion that that an opinion here's one of my maxims. An opinion says as much about the opiner as it does its subject. Mm -hmm. So when somebody expresses an opinion about something important like this, they're really saying as much about themselves as they are what they're talking about. Yeah. Because we always measure things where we're standing from. So, you know, if speaking up for the poor and speaking up for the people who exploit it is communism, I think that says a little bit about the people who are making the comments. As much as it does me, because by that criteria, there's a whole lot of people thrown in that bucket with me, like Jesus of Nazareth, Paul, all of the prophets that mm -hmm. I quote verbatim in my book and elsewhere. I got a lot of company in that camp. Is that if that's what the definition is? Yeah. And so, you know, the, the real for for someone who takes the, the message of the gospel seriously, you got two paths. You get the path of following Jesus and what he says about the kingdom and, and how the way the world works. Or you got other. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, he didn't have like a whole bunch of ideology spit up, which are way I think the devil distracts us and has us fight about the wrong, the wrong questions and the wrong issues. And and I think we need to say, did, did Jesus give us an accurate pic picture of this world and the next one or not? Yeah. And how do we respond to it? Yeah. And a theme of mine in the last several months to close to a year has, has been Matthew 7. Um, 13 talking about, you know, enter through the narrow gate because it really does feel like the, yeah. the, the path that you, that to, to truth is pretty narrow and wide is the gate and, you know, broad is the road that leads to destruction. Well, you can mm -hmm. go lean on the right side of the, the road or the left side of the road is wide, but uh, th that's all leading to destruction. So, yeah. um, you know, you know, back in his day, everybody tried to find their favorite rabbi to follow. Mm-hmm. And it was all following rabbis. And, you know, that's no difference in what we do with right. our TV evangelists today or religious celebrities. You know, in fact, they're even trying to bring rabbis back in. And what Jesus called them, he said, uh, you know, they're all blind guides. And it says when you follow a blind guy, both they and the people they lead are going to fall into a ditch. Yeah. So I would say we might spend a little bit less time listening to these third parties and a little bit more time just taking the words of Christ at face value. Yeah, they're still relevant. They still work. They have implications for the world that we live in. And that's why in my book, I sort of push the envelope further. And, you know, most of the people never get to page 168, which is the history section, mm -hmm. which, which gives some harass, uh, historical veracity to the claims that I'm making. Because when I talk about the leaven of the Pharisees and I go through about 30 attributes of what they showed about how much they hated the poor, how much they tried to kiss up to the government and, and come up with all sorts of you know kickbacks and money with them. Th then I go and take it to today and talk about the gospel of Hannity, uh, Limbaugh, Fox News, and conservative media. And I compare that on you know 25 or 30 issues of today, all the hot button issues. And I compare, here's what Jesus said with the apostles, the prophets, the others. And here's what they say on their show. And surprise, surprise, there's no overlap. Mm. <laughs> now, yeah. you know, 
I was raised on all those. You know, my you know, my wife and I, after we got married, we were down there in New York at Fox and Friends outside the window waving, you know, like goofballs. You know, that was on all the time in our house. I I listened to all that, you know. And so that's in the middle of my culture. Yeah. That's what I've been raised in in church. It's everything that I've been a part of. But what I've been trying to do these last years of being underground is start peeling back the onion and seeing what's Jesus and what's not quite Jesus. Right. And most of religious culture falls into the not quite Jesus part of thing. It feels good. It, it's comfortable culture for me. It makes me feel secure. Doesn't really challenge me very much. Uh, I can still dislike people who are different that look different than me or were raised different than me. But none of that's Jesus. Mm-hmm. And so that's what this book tries to do is to give biblical justification for people to ask the unspeakable mm-hmm. is to actually ask, you know, are the and this and this is why I say that that which we do not critique, we worship. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Probably a good definition of worship is when you no longer critique something, you're worshiping it. And so. When we critique all of this, like I say in the beginning of my book, it is an act of worshiping Jesus because right. I want to critique all the things that sound good at first pass and sound comfortable to me and very Christian-y. And I'll look at, is it really measure up to what Jesus was about? And most of the stuff flunks. Mm. And so I, I sort of grieve. I go through a grieving cycle because that was part of who I was in my culture, in my circle. But Jesus expects no less than that. Yeah. So that's part of what this it's it's a difficult journey for the reader, for the people who stay and get all the way to the end of the book. And also, you know, it's long. It's not like a uh, a little blog or a uh, you know Facebook meme, right? You right. know, or a picture. <laughs> yeah. Because you know, people need need to have you know a hundred things splashing on their screen like it's a uh, video game. You know, they're used to seeing robots stomping on buildings. <laughs> <laughs> They're not used to having something where they have to spend an hour or more mulling over the implications to their world of mm-hmm. timeless truth. Yeah. And until we get back to that, and I'm not saying necessarily my book or whatever, but a quality book, you know, like, you know, later you've mentioned Chesterton as somebody who caught your eye for my writing. Mm-hmm. Those kind of people, until we go back and re- reflect on the basics, we're only going to get deeper and deeper in the hole. Yeah. We, we have incredible communication technologies today. I mean, we live in the ultimate information age. If you're willing to invest the time, you can get to the bottom of what's true or not true on almost anything. Yeah. Down to source material, it's a miracle. But people don't want to invest the time to do it. Right. Yeah. It feels it's a true. lot better to send a meme that's sort of catchy and makes you inflate your chest on who you are than to go through and find out, have I been misled? Yeah. Yeah. It's very true. And uh, I think part of that has been uh, the the reason why we're, especially in this country, we find ourselves in this situation is is because of some pretty specific, uh, well, psychological operations to really mess with the way we think. You know, to kind of bridge into some of the specifics, you know, I I, I remember thinking maybe two or three years ago there I read stuff that the progressives and leftists liberals, mm-hmm. what they would say about certain things about the right wing and the conservative crowd. Right. And they'll bring up, Oh, the, those guys don't care about the poor or the needy or whatever. And I remember thinking like, well, maybe they do, but they express it in a different way. But then how are these progressives? Like, how are they showing that they care so much if they're, 
solutions aren't necessarily the most viable solutions or whatever it might be. But I think reading through, especially that first part of the book, um, it really made me think about, okay, can we, can we actually come together with <laughs> people that we disagree with on some very straightforward sermon on the Mount type of basic stuff that we can agree upon. And they're very simple. They're not very complicated when yeah. you distill it down to the, the foundation of what Jesus was talking about and how, how to treat each other. And, um, and I think that gets lost. And, and, I'm, and I kept wondering why, why, why are we so distracted, lost when it comes to that conversation? And why are we so swayed by the politics and the, the whatever, the, all that stuff. And I think part of it, you mentioned earlier about, you know, we're, we're spending way more time watching Fox news or, you know, whatever, whatever mm-hmm. it might be info or a YouTube video or YouTube. Well, nowadays right. YouTube and, and all these different right. platforms. And right. you got, if you're under the age of 50, that's oh, yeah. where you get your information. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then you spend what, 45 minutes on a Sunday or something listening to a sermon. So of course you're getting right. a majority of your information from these, uh, from the, the general public talking about it. And, and so obviously the message gets lost, but, uh, I'm glad you got into some of the details too, because that's what I was curious about. And I, I was wondering, okay, is this something that just happened or was there a progression and how long has that progression been going? And, uh, so the first question I have here about that, um, that you mentioned in your book, uh, an author named Jonathan Herzog. And he wrote yep. a book called The Spiritual Industrial Complex. And um, I'd love for our audience to know why that book is important and what yeah. uh, what you found in your research of, of the spiritual industrial complex. Okay. Well, you know, the other thing I need to clarify on this, and I'll explain a little bit about him, um, is that this whole section of the book at the beginning of the history chapter was only really a preamble. Mm-hmm. And what I wanted to use it for was for the skeptic who I write my work for. I, I just innately write for somebody who I know was going to casually reject what I'm, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> alleging. Yeah. Um, it, it, that they would believe it's impossible on what I allege in the main part of my book, which is that there was a particular time around 1940 when the National Association of Manufacturers, uh, the Chamber of Commerce, was convinced by the first prosperity gospel preacher. James Fifield, that the way to rehabilitate the horrible reputation and public image of big business, which had been seen as dragging us into the Great Depression because of their greed and their hubris, was to target the clergy and to refashion and re-overhaul a gospel that took out blessed are the poor in spirit and, and all of these other things that they thought were anathema uh, and to take government, which was you know, authorized by God, and I showed the scriptures to protect the poor in the courts and in the marketplace from the dishonest weights and measures, which is typified in, in Revelation and Revelation 18, the great city Babylon. Okay, it's, it's, not a, it's not a government. It is an economic system that controls the lives and affairs of men. And that, that they actually were successful in getting the clergy over to basically throwing out the basic teaching. And in fact, there had been a revival in care about the downtrodden 
um, at the beginning of the 20th century with the progressive movement and the what they call the social gospel people. That's the name they hung them as a derogatory thing. But these horrible, terrible people you hear about, the social gospel people, were actually going into the slums that had been developed during the industrial age and going out there and helping these poor, wretched souls that had no health care. They, they couldn't read. They couldn't go to school. They were illiterate. They had doomed lives, short lifespans. You know, the, the average lifespan in 1900 was 35 years old in America. Wow. And so the industrial age had pulled these people off the farms and put them in these, you know, teeming cities. And they were pitiful. And so somehow God did a move where Christians started getting a conscience about it. And then there was the great pushback. The empire struck back. And even though the Great Depression was a terrible low point for the reputation of big business, they were able to concoct this thing where they basically bankrolled a Christian media that made government the enemy, the New Deal an enemy, jobs programs an enemy, Social Security, veterans benefits. These were all the devil. And this is what they did. So what I do at the beginning of that section to show people an example of how this could possibly happen with these supposedly spirit-filled Christians and leaders that we venerate in the Christian world, how could they swallow and buy something so anti-Christian, is I show how it was done in spades at the beginning of the Cold War. And that's what leads into Dr. Herzog. Dr. Herzog, I try to just use um, people for my references that are top in their field. And he is one of these people. He's a Ph.D. in history from Stanford. He worked at the conservative Hoover Institution think tank. So he's conservative credentials. And this book has it's an award winning book. And he shows how. The Christian community, first their leadership and then the rank and file, were co-opted by political figures who had an agenda other than the kingdom of heaven at stake and how easily they were able to turn the rudder and get them focused on something else other than just purely kingdom of heaven values. And they were seduced by earthly agendas and they was wrapped up in the phoniest of religious wrappings. I mean, once your eyes are open. You have to roll your eyes at what they got away with. Yeah. But but it works because they appeal to the pride of people, mm-hmm. whether it's patriotic pride or ethnic pride or whatever. And and what I call the electness of being, you know, an exceptional American. Of course, we anoint ourselves exceptional, just like prophets these days anoint themselves prophets. You know, we call ourselves exceptional because we want to be. And a lot of that Calvinism elect teachings in the Puritans has percolated through all the rest of us that we're better than everybody else. And so anytime you got a message wrapped in that, Christians buy it hook, line, and sinker. Mm. Uh, and so um, I'll give you a little bit more about how, how they did that, if you'd like for me to, yeah. uh, to elaborate a little of, of bit course. on that. Yeah. Um, uh, most of us Christians know about David Barton. I assume you do, yep. you know, even on um, um, TV all the time. He's made a fortune constructing a mythology about America being founded like a ch- type of church itself. Uh, but what many Christians don't know is that this mythology of, of iconic images like Washington praying in the snow, you know, at Valley Forge and the divine destiny of America was largely created in the boardrooms of the White House 
during the Truman and Eisenhower administration on specific dates and events we can track that was collectively involving heads of wartime propaganda from World War II propaganda experts and intelligence agencies were involved, big business CEOs and heads, along with senior Christian leaders, all in the same rooms, and they were crafting a mythology that they dispersed at great expense across multiple media p- platforms to sell the public the idea that the Cold War was a religious holy war. Mm. It wasn't just a war between two competing political ideologies, but it was actually a religious holy war, which it had not been conceived of at that time, and that America had a spiritual destiny. And you've seen some religious teachers work so hard they can to try to find America in the pages of the Bible so right. they can give some kind of the slimness of legitimacy to that. And and that um, from that time back you know, in the late 40s, the generations we've come up to really have generally not questioned those premises, mm-hmm. at least in the conservative circles I've been in. In fact, most of them assume that a lot of the things that I'm going to mention, the things that are iconic things like the in God we trust and one nation or God, go back to the founding of America. But they don't. They go back to our grandparents' age, and they were all done within a couple-year period of time and were backfit as part of our mythology. And the reason why Dr. Herzog says that Truman and the other American leaders at the time were worried that Americans would find communism actually desirable over unbridled capitalism. Mm. Now, the question I have is why would they find that desirable? You know, we, we were learning about Bolshevism now. Granted, you know, Papa Joe Stalin was like our favorite guy in the early 40s fighting the Nazis. And he was promoted and told how well good he is, you know, mm-hmm. and then it changes on a dime when we're. We're fighting off against, and obviously it was a brutal regime that is inexcusable. But you know, in their whims, he's good until he's not good, or until he's a rival. And so they were worried that that communism would look attractive to America, which shows you the kind of paranoia that that these figures have because they know themselves that the the corporate world that we have, even back then, going back to the robber barons. The whole industrial age, the Gilded Age, has fleeced America and the Western world for a long, long, long time. And they're always afraid that they're going to be exposed, that finally the people are going to get wise to what's going on and start listening to the people that warned them. Well, he was worried about that. And so what they did in their normal overreaction was that they they brainstormed and they said, well, the only thing we've got over communism is that they went and said that they were atheists. So we're mm. going to exploit that one attribute to the public, and what we're going to have to do to get people to sacrifice what we want them to sacrifice, particularly to build the defense military establishment, is we've got to make it a spiritual holy war. Mm. And that's what he did. He, he made it a holy war. And the key event that really kicked it off was in May 1947 at the White House, where they brought in all the top CEOs in America because they had the biggest vested interest in fighting communism. They had the most to lose. And all the media moguls that ran the networks, radio and TV, they met in the Justice Department, and they called this group the American Heritage Foundation. And they had the task of creating a generic faith, or what we now call a civil religion, that the war, that the war propaganda and the psychological warfare experts who were there could use on the American public. Now, these guys were paid, the intelligence agencies were were not supposed to affect the American public. They were supposed to target outsiders. 
but it was turned around and used on the people that paid their salaries, the mm. American public. Yeah. And so some of the things they did was create this thing called the Freedom Train that they put America's founding documents like they were sacred relics, like you had the Ark of the Covenant on it. And it was patterned, actually, ironically, on the Lenin train. That <laughs> Lenin did the same thing with their communist documents around. They had a what a faith pledge, like a pledge of freedom. And in fact, a lot of them, they took them in front of churches. And they would make churches. You had to go pledge your you know, total um, uh, unyielding allegiance to Western capitalism. And and what that was about at the church altar, which is which is a place I consider an embassy of the kingdom of heaven. You know, it's really real estate of another kingdom, but that's what they were doing there at the altar. You know, everybody standing around you, of course, you better sign this. These are these are loyalty oaths, basically, they're getting. They even taught the Fourth of July was a religious holiday. Yeah. <laughs> so it, this was so widespread. Just one of these incidences, they had an incident in the Sugar Bowl where they had 75,000 people there, all basically coerced to sign this pledge simultaneously there. And so they started um, promoting groups like these propaganda outfits like Radio Free Europe and uh, Radio Liberty, which were supposed to send propaganda behind the Iron Curtain. And had guys like uh, Herbert Hoover, the FBI chief behind this. They even sold to the public that it was totally a grassroots effort intentionally deceived the American public that it was all funded by these little kids collecting nickels and dimes at their schools where they would have to bring this so that people could hear behind the iron curtain. They never said that the CIA was funding it all completely on their own because then they would know it would taint what they were doing. So they made this thing and they took everybody's money as if it was some kind of secular grassroots effort that they were doing. But they built so much of what we take uh, for granted today, this big business intelligence agency, clergy leadership consortium over the next uh, 15 months produced this foundational document that created our culture called One Nation Under God. It was just like an intelligence assessment. Mm. And and they said in this document, quote, that there is a need to weld religion to democracy. Yeah. And for, quote, public comparisons between the Bible and America's most revered national documents if we were to win the cold war so that started a chain of events all funded by the government now people will say hey these are all good things but they're getting into spiritual matters that are totally for somebody else's agenda one, one of the things that they didn't do with all this god talk that they were doing and in the national dialogue and paying for there was nothing discussed about kingdom of heaven agenda which is what jesus talk is supposed to be about how do people come in the kingdom of heaven? How do people, you know, converted to follow Jesus and, and to be prepared for the world to come? None of that was part of this. They were using God talk to achieve a political ideological purpose. Mm. And so they started by getting things like this in God we trust phrase. They came up, I'm sure they had their, their advertising agency guys because the advertising <laughs> council was in it. They probably tested it with audiences. Yeah. Does this make you feel warm or feel good? They, they suddenly started putting on all the currency, readed the currency. The national motto was changed. They even put it on stamps and canceled letters. They even got businesses to start putting it on the utility bills. They, they added it to the end of the Pledge of Allegiance, 
which which ironically was actually the Pledge of Allegiance was come up by some Baptist socialist. Right. <laughs> he was a guy who wrote a book, Jesus is a Socialist. He's the guy that did it, and they added under God on it. And the people who fought it at the time were the Christian leaders because they were cheapening religion by doing something like this. They yeah. were they were taking something sacred and they were adding it to the profane so that people would make these statements and go through the motions. Uh, you know, we're, we're talking about very serious things about following God, and they're making it very banal. Mm-hmm. And um, even even Eisenhower, who who took this and bought into it in spades, he got in the act. He was of Jehovah's Witness background. Right. And he wasn't really part of religion. Well, he decided, I'll go get baptized in a Presbyterian church because it would look better. Mm-hmm. It would help sell this. That's right. I mean, that's how committed they were to true spiritual issues. Right, right. So, I mean, they paid and they sent out. I think it was like 680,000 copies of the Pledge of Allegiance, adding this phrase to it, just trying to drill it into people's head, America equals God, God equals America. Um, They they built this congressional prayer room. This this is a good little archetype of it, where they put in a stained glass window with this idea they came up with of Washington, you know, on one knee praying at Valley Forge. And the whole thing was to make him look like a saint, like they do the saints at a lot of churches. Right. I mean, they were, I mean, they were clever in how they affect our psychology yeah. of how we look at things. In fact, in the House report on when they um, voted on accepting the National Monument of God We Trust, they said it had psychological value. Mm. I mean, they just say it. They, they, they none, none, of that are king, none of that are kingdom motives at all <laughs> yeah. in what they do. There's a lot more like that, but all that stuff that we take, that we think were from the founding of our country was, was a part of who we were. No, there was some ad agency and intelligence people, along with clergymen, who got in a boardroom over a set of months and came up, and they spent a lot of taxpayer money, and their whole purpose was not to spread the gospel one iota. Yeah. You know, a lot of the things you're talking about here— uh, I was reminded of a recent event. I think it's about a year ago of, as of this recording. Uh, but former uh, general, retired Lieutenant General Michael Flynn made a video. I think it was on 4th of July uh, making an oath, which is usually taken to the members of the House and Senate. And uh, one of the lines is, quote, will support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. And at the end, he says, where we go one, we go all. Uh, and then he says, God bless America. Yeah. And uh, this video of him doing it was shared, especially amongst the QAnon followers. They love this. That's and their phrase. It's the, yeah, it was their phrase. And yeah. all these people on social media started reciting the oath and posting themselves reciting it. And I mean, at that point, I was already very, I mean, you know, I, I never really yeah. bought into QAnon, but that was like one of those moments where I'm like, hey, guys, can you see the PSYOP here? <laughs> can, you, can you tell that this is not what they're trying? You know, this, this is something else. Um, not not to mention a, a video I, I did a year ago. I pointed out how the QAnon, all the Q posts never mentioned Jesus once. They literally never mentioned his oh. name one time. Oh. Uh, so all has these nothing Christians, to do with it. Yeah. Nor yeah. nor his values. Yeah. So it has it has nothing to do with it. But now they would like to use Christians for the muscle. Yes. For the go- for the goons. It's like they get goons in because they got the muscle. And that's what I think, you know, in hindsight, having voted Republican most of my life, that's what I think the Republican Party has done. 
you know, it's like Lucy holding a football. Oh, we're going to give you this. We're going to give you that religious right. And they just don't ever quite get around to doing it. And they'll say, well, next time we'll do it. But we do need your vote. When the things that they get, like the tax plan that was approved, you know, a few years ago, the whole line share was for big business. I mean, yeah. they cut corporate taxes in half. They, they, they threw a tiny bone to the rest of us. But the big thing was for the rest of these guys, you know who they really respond to and who they're working to. But, you know, m- maybe QAnon was right on one little point. Um, at least they're starting to get the pedophiles now uh, in high level office with Matt yeah. Gates, you know, oh, yeah. and the other Republican <laughs> officials. I don't know if that's quite what they were selling no. as the pedophile network. <laughs> no. You know, I don't think that's who they were targeting, but maybe the pedophiles would. It'd just not be quite the pedophiles they thought were going to be. Right. You know? Well, uh, there's, like Harry Hyde and those other guys, yeah. and, you know, the stuff that they did, you know. Yeah, they, they come from both sides of the aisle. But um, yeah, getting back to the, the idea of having muscle, um, I did have as part of the my notes here in the questions too, in 47, 1947, Truman ordered the uh, universal military training for young men. Right. And I believe the right. quote was to, quote, morally and spiritually engineer the U.S. Army, which you talked about, yep. and to, quote, create a perfect soldier who could ground lethal capability in a religious framework. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was like, whoa, that is crazy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 1947 uh, ran the program at Fort Knox, not far from where I live right now, where I grew up. Um, but I mean, basically... How's any difference than that in the Mujahideen? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking. It's a Mujahideen yeah. holy warrior. And so, you know, the military is so overwhelming on these impressionable 18 year olds. Yeah. You know, you're awestruck by the institutional um, power and trappings of these people, these larger than life, not only boot camp people, but the whole system around you. That you basically can mold them to whatever you want. And yeah. that's the whole point of boot camp. They mold people into killing machines. Mm-hmm. Remorseless killing machines that don't ask questions when they're given orders. And it's a it's a pretty simple kind of thing. You know, I've been studying a lot lately about hypnotism, stage mm-hmm. hypnotism and things like that. And I'm starting to learn from them that a lot of the, the surefire techniques they use to make people totally suggestible are the same things that I see the uh, – signs and wonders people do mm. when they do like the slain in the spirit stuff and things. Right. This is old news. This is stuff that the hypnotists were doing for a long time. Yeah. But one of the things that I read in there is they said that fear is one of the main keys to make people easy pickings for hypnotists mm. to make people suggestible. Interesting. And they were giving examples of people who were tough people and said, Oh, we can't be hypnotized. They said, you call them up on the stage. He says, it's actually a mask for fear. And they said, fear creates i was i was reading this from the guy who's considered the dean of hypnotist orman mcgill he says that it bewilders the brain and when it bewilders the brain i guess it makes it open for somebody who brings orderly strong commands to them Mm. so an external force says do this and they said what happens is you bring one of these tough guys in a heckler and they're actually afraid of being hypnotized you you bring them up and he said what you do is you sort of surprise them you grab them by the back of the head and tap them on the forehead Mm. Now, if you've seen these things on the oh, religious yeah. shows, you know, they said they'll go down immediately. Yeah. Interesting. Now, there's no Holy Spirit involved in that. Yeah. And so they take them straight down and they said, go sleep. And the people just go straight to sleep because they said fear does this. And that's why all the stuff I get in my in basket. All I mean, there's tons of religious ministries, you know, 
I do a lot of opposition research. So they're dumping all their stuff in my email, <laughs> all fear-based because it makes people swallow anything. Yeah. And they know the best buttons. Oh, well, there, there's a pedophile network everywhere and it's, and it's under a pizza parlor and it's doing all this kind of stuff. It's like you got them eating out of their hands. You can sell whatever political position, candidate or whatever, because you've terrified the people. And and that's why in many ways, and, I, and I'll have a little sympathy on the Cold War. You know, I mean, there, there was a real powerful nation that had nukes and stuff like that. I mean, compared to the anti-Sharia craziness, this actually, at least, were not just a bunch of guys hiding in caves. I mean, these were real people. Right. But as we find out later, it was grossly oversold when they did the Team B report or Team A report. We find out later that they lied to us and all the capabilities of Russia grossly overdid because they wanted to sell defense contracts. They had to build the defense military contract, but they had to scare everybody. Yeah, the sensationalizing so of, of everything. And we see it everywhere now. People will sign on the dotted line. You know, oh, no, I need I need covers for my gutters because what happens if I get leaves in my gutters? All you got to do is scare people. You're going to fall off a ladder. You better get that on there. It's the oldest trick in the book. Yeah. You know? Yeah. What What if your neighbors come over and find you have waxy yellow buildup on your floor? You better buy what we're selling. And so yeah. that's what they did on a national level with this. But what they found is, you know, I mean. Here, here they brainwash in Korea and things like that. Why not do it just with this and do religious stuff this way? So what they did was they actually took all these young people. They took every one of them, profiled them on their religion, and then they coerced each of them into some taxpayer-paid religious conversion decision in the program. Mm. So in other words, they put pressure on them. And you know how authentic those kind of. Yeah. decisions to follow God will be. Right. They coerced them in a big room to make a decision so they could check off a box at that point. And then they just deluged them with hours of re weekly religious services, personal time with the chaplain, and they even instructed local church congregations to keep drilling in their brain that our nation was founded on religious principles. Yeah. Now, I will say this about this, just like I do about the big business changing of the Christian mind which is the biggest bulk of my book. Mm -hmm. Why do these people have to spend so much money selling us on ideas so hard if it's naturally true? If it's right. something that we instinctively see is true and right, how come they have to bring in the big guns of salespeople? You know, you don't get the top level attorneys to represent you when it's obvious to everybody that you're innocent right. in a court case. Yeah. Okay. It's when you're clearly, you know, like an OJ Simpson guy that you have to bring in the people that can turn everybody's thinking on their head. And that's why they spent so much time and effort on things that were non-natural ideas. Mm. And that's why the religious leaders at the time, back then they actually had, you know, some brain molecules at the time and they protested this and they said it was an un-American form of religious indoctrination. And eventually what they found out, was they immersed these people, and it was like a cult, nonstop religious, uh, you know, draining, drilling in their head. As soon as they backed off in the early 60s, the people went back to being a typical soldier, going out, hanging out the bar, the stripper club, doing what soldiers do. Some right. of them went to church, some of them went to other, but it was no different than what it was before they did it. So it had no, no real good purpose. Mm. It was a waste of time. But the weird thing is, is that they kept this kind of training in the officer's corps. Mm. And to this day, they still have the same kind of thing, including 
the t- drilling the Ten Commandments in them, hmm. which I hate I hate to have to tell them, but you know I'm under the New Covenant, not under the Law. You know, Jesus nailed those commandments to the cross in Colossians, uh, paid having paid the price for it. But they're still drilling that stuff in their head of the officers, and that's why we get guys like a General Jerry Boykin, second in command there at Family Research Council, saying all sorts of insane things, joining Knights of Malta, mm. trying to get groups to assassinate Islamic leaders. You know, General Boykin was the guy who sent this other, quote, Christian ministry that took Bibles, sent them over to North Korea. You know, to take God, Bibles, and if the North Koreans bothered them, then it was, of course, Christian persecution. Well, what came out later, it was discovered underneath the Bibles, they were putting uh, military diagnostic and communication devices underneath the Bibles right. in North Korea to help support an invasion of North Korea. This is, this is who Jerry Boykin sent in, the Christian man. Now, what does that do to the church in North Korea? What kind of pushback? Is or an already paranoid government worried about a U.S. taking them over? Do when you find out the Christian people under the guise of Christian work are doing that kind of stuff? Right. This is what a generation of t- of training this kind of myopic, non-reflective kind of spiritual pursuit you end up with with insanity. Yeah, yeah, and I, and the concept of. Um saving Western civilization, saving Christianity. I think you've touched on some of these points and you mentioned it earlier about why they were framing everything as fighting communism. Um, and, and the effects, uh, the, the role that the church played, the role media played. I, I mean, it, it is a big operation. I, I am appalled. That, and, I, and I have to wonder, there's gotta be, there's gotta be some, usefulness that god sees in this <laughs> i mean because if they're if they're moving bibles to north korea of course they had all, all those communication devices underneath but you'd have to believe that maybe god is like all right at least we got some bibles over there maybe maybe work through that a little bit but i, I don't know if a single bible got in anybody's hand oh really because that wasn't the point the point was was to put something in there as a cover for a i mean the, the department of defense was funding this christian agency yeah to go put these um, nu- nuclear and other weapons detection devices to help with the U.S. invasion. So literally, there, there's, literally there's a Trojan horse. Good. You know, that would be like saying the woman riding the beast in Revelation 17. Well, you know, she may have some good <laughs> attributes. You know, maybe she's got a pretty dress, you know, or it's very ornate what she has. But ultimately in her cup, she has the blood of saints. Right, right. So, you know, we can't really put lipstick on a pig. You know, you know, they say if if it's a bad tree, it's going to produce bad fruit. Right. And a bad tree can't produce good fruit. Yeah. And that's why we got to go back and look at the foundations. What have all these strangers led us to believe and accepted as irrefutable presuppositions of what we're doing? Yeah. You yeah. know, in some extent, there's Bible ignorance that goes on. But I know a lot of these people are hearing the Bible in their churches. But it's just not sinking in. Uh-huh. They're, they're, they're not taking the time to put it all together. And I'm not saying I'm the ultimate answer on all these things. I make mistakes at time. Maybe I'm overreaching at time, and I deserve critique in what I do. But at least I recognize the problem, even if I don't have all the answers. And, and it's not that we don't have access to information to vet this kind of stuff. That mm-hmm. information's out there. An idiot like me can find it. 
Right. You know, <laughs> it's, it's to care, yeah. to care enough and to invest the time and say, boy, if this makes me feel really good and cozy, then I better be careful. Yeah. And it's you almost know? like you can, you can hear, you can hear the stuff in church. Um, but it's almost like, okay, how do I apply it? And that's where the co-op happens, right? Oh, well, we're going to apply it to defending this country. We're going to apply it to defending capitalism, whatever it is, um, which is sort of the way, I, I mean, I guess it's how it's played out, but uh, I do want to touch on, um, you, you, you call them strangers. I want to talk about this stranger named Billy Graham real quick and <laughs> um, his role in the psyop now i've heard a lot of people talk about he's a freemason and um i know i guess the billy graham people uh, the, the rumors were pretty hot i don't know of several years ago and the organization came out and said no he never was part of the freemasons or whatever uh, but my whole thing is like did he have to be an actual freemason to be involved in any of this stuff with uh just you know rubbing shoulders with the wealthy class and the political elite and uh, so, yeah, what, what was his deal? What was his role in shaping some of this stuff? Well, you know, you're picking at some things. That I have to confess a little bit around the margins of the book, but everybody's going to pick their own thing that catches their eye. So because there's I think you would agree with me. There's a ton of stuff. There's in this so book. much. I, I'm looking I mean, at the time. I try, to I'm keep, to, I try to keep so much meat per yeah. page. But regarding Billy Graham, because he's such a central figure in defining um, our religious culture. Mm hmm. And believe me, there's been worse people than Billy Graham, but never was there somebody who was in a better position to having set things right. Mm. And that's probably the real issue is. And I have to confess about the Freemason thing. You know, growing up through the Future Quake area, um, Freemasonry was a big bugaboo, and I had to learn about it. And I don't support it's it's just a it's sort of a Gnostic -y kind of belief system. Mm -hmm mystical belief system and I, I don't endorse it one iota i think its primary threat is probably come and gone mm. uh, its main purpose was that it was a good way to screen out people that could keep secrets mm. for a bunch of different institutional purposes right they were able to screen people keep their mouth shut while also very subtly Giving them, getting them confused with all sorts of mystical views that were not biblically supported, mm -hmm. which is just what the Gnostics do. Yeah. Um, and so they they were successful in that. In times past, the Freemasons provided the only place where you could speak about the Pope or speak about um, the whoever was the emperor at the time. And so that's partly why some of that came about is where they had a secret place to go talk about stuff. Um, Later, it had some pretty dark connotations in America. And there was a time not that long ago where, you know, you wanted the jury foreman on your trial, if you were a Mason, to be be a Mason. And you felt pretty comfortable. You know, all you had to ask is if there was any help for the widow's son. Mm. And things took over from there, which, by the way, I heard a guy the other day say that on really? TV news. They sent out the Masonic distress signal. Wow. Yeah. Interesting. But, um but but really, at this point, I think, you know, there are other institutions for the top level people yeah. that do a similar thing for, for higher level people like Yale. Mm -hmm. Yale is the breeding ground for the East Coast elites that run our top agencies. Skull and Bones does a similar mm -hmm. thing. Yep. It teaches one generation of ruling families after the next how to keep your mouth shut. They pass dirt on each other to help convince them to keep it shut. 
um, through those ceremonies and things. And so, you know, and even things like Bohemian Grove helped do that. Right. But the thing with Billy Graham is that a lot of times I've liked his simple message of the gospel, and I'm not disputing that some people maybe in your audience that are older actually had a conversion experience from hearing him on TV or something, and I'm I'm not challenging that. But from the very beginning of his ministry, he had big dreams and ambitions. Mm. The people in his biography said, yeah, you didn't get in the way of Billy Graham. He was a tough character growing up, uh, and he was going places, and he wouldn't let anybody get in his way. The big break he got was when um, um, the man out in the West, uh, Hearst, William Randolph Hearst, owned all the newspapers, liked his anti-communism message that he was mm. preaching in L.A. there, and I think it was 49. And he, he sent out the famous message to all the newspapers to Puff Graham. And suddenly he was an overnight sensation. He went to go see Truman. Truman couldn't stand the guy because he thought he was a phony. He was doing all this theatrical stuff out on the White House lawn and acting like a goof. And, and you know, for all his good and bad points, Truman was a no-nonsense guy, Missouri kind of guy that said, this, this is mostly showman stuff here. But for a reason why guys like a um, Billy Graham and his other peers, why they took off, that whole movement was funded by big oil. Mm. It was a big oil movement. We hear everything today about, oh, we worry about George Soros. We worry about the you know Silicon Valley guys, and they have a different progressive view on this and that. But the thing that built the religious right was big oil money. He had a guy by the name of Sid Richardson in Texas that was his bankroller, and that's how you got Billy Graham Association getting to be so big. By the time it was time to form uh, Christianity Today, he went to another guy who, who was probably the biggest villain in my book and more so in the next book, uh, J. Howard Pugh, uh, who with his father founded Sunoco. Mm. You, you don't have a bigger mover and shaker in this whole religious pro-business movement than J. Howard Pugh. J. Howard Pugh was a guy that ponied up all the money for Christianity Today. But at the same time, they made a deal. And uh, the guys who were there at it, that Carl Henry and others had found at Christianity Today, uh, you know, talk about this. And they quote it in his letters that he says, trusted at Christianity Today, we will not question your economic theories, your economic positions, and, you know, your anti-union positions, um, you know, your positions about government, evils of government, public assistance. That was partly what they had to give up to get that money. And until they had a falling out, probably almost a decade later, that was the official position of Christianity Today. It was a pro-big business, anti-common folk message. And, and this is the kind of stuff that Billy Graham did. And that's why he really didn't care as much, although at various times they were, I guess they could call themselves friends, guys like Martin Luther King. When Martin Luther King stood on principle and was jailed in the Birmingham jail, Billy Graham's public response, I went and looked it up in the newspapers at the time. He thought that Martin Luther King was wasting his time <laughs> speaking up for these you know, people who, who couldn't go to a lunch counter or you know, couldn't vote, these kind of things. He said he was wasting his time. But the thing that bothers me the most about Billy Graham, you know, of course, he talked about how the Jews run everything. You know, that was on the Nixon tapes. How, you know, Billy Graham was railing about, you know, the Jews run everything in the media and everything. So there's all sorts of dirty stuff like that around. Um, 
he was a big proponent of the Vietnam War. In fact, uh, I think I mentioned this in my book. Um, he was always bringing proposals, particularly to Nixon. He, he, you know, he he did something with the Democratic politicians a little bit. Mostly when Nixon came in, that was his man, and he had a proposal that he said he had concocted with missionaries for our government to bomb all of the dams in northern Vietnam to drown all the villagers. It would wipe out all of their food. It would wipe out all the farmers, all the villages. It would kill them all. Now, this is the kind of thing that is against the Geneva Convention. There was a guy that did that in World War II, and he got hung from the gallows for doing that. But this was the kind of stuff. And Nixon said that Billy Graham should be considered a cabinet member to the rest of his cabinet. Any proposal he had for foreign policy or whatever was to be considered a cabinet-level incentive. So what, what he spoke about the young people. The young people said, you know, something's not right about this Vietnam War. There's just something right. We're not being told everything. Mm -hmm. And they made marches and things like this. He basically called them tools of the communist, that they were uh, collaborating with the enemy. And he said that publicly. Right. Now, later we find out that the whole thing triggered Vietnam. The Gulf of Tonkin incident mm -hmm. was a lie. It never happened. Even the guy who um, ran for vice president there with um, – who was the third-party candidate in the 90s, um, just blanked out, ran against Clinton and Bush. Perot. Um, Perot. Yeah. His, his VP was actually a general who was flying over the Gulf of Tonkin at that time. They classified his communications, and he and everybody else there said there is no attack. Yeah. But LBJ used it. Oh, we were under attack. We got attacked as the authority for a police action. And before we knew it, we had 50,000 young men dead. Mm -hmm. So it was built on a lie. And the, the youth didn't know all the information, but they, I think, in some ways were a lot smarter than some of our youth today, including myself. Um, Billy Graham made him their enemy and and accused them of terrible things. And so... Suddenly, we find out after that, they start talking about something called the generation gap, mm -hmm. where young people start mistrusting the older generation. They don't want to go to their churches they don't want because they don't think these people are really looking after them right. or, or have values they respect. And so they're not there. And, you know, Billy Graham just wrung his hand lamented, well, how come these young people aren't going to our churches? I don't understand. I, they just seem – of course, they, they blame somebody else. They would blame some other culprit. But I put a big part of that at the feet of Billy Graham. You know, if Billy Graham would have gone down there with those young people and say, hey, there's a lot we don't know about Vietnam. There's a lot of people trying to do good things. They mean well. But there's a lot of questions here, and we need to stop before we figure it out and get a full accounting. If he would have gone out there and marched with him, that would have ground that war to a stop. Mm. And there's yeah. no telling how many tens of thousands of Americans would be alive today if he'd done that. Yeah. So, you know, that's the kind of stuff you won't hear other Christians talk about those kind of issues right. or the ramifications. Those are the kind of things I'm revisiting. Yeah. What, what kind of fruit did, did that bear? But the main part of it is the big business association and the values with it. Mm -hmm. Poor people are a burden. There should not be government assistance for people like that. Immigrants are a burden. They're, a da they're all a danger to us. They all mean ill against us. Everything needs to be privatized. Government is a danger because they could actually tax us. And worst of all, they do regulations and regulations that 
would mean that we would have to operate in a safe manner, in a clean manner. Those are the kind of things that in my book I show that, that this, this new generation of Christian media started beating this like a drum from the time of spiritual mobilization uh, around in the um, 1940s. And eventually they, they were saturating all of our clergy with this kind of – to the point of having them teach sermons mm-hmm. where they would pay $5,000 if you would preach a sermon about the virtues of big business in your church. None of the people, parishioners, knew that their, their clergymen were getting money under the table from these big businesses to rehabilitate <laughs> their image. It's unbelievable. <laughs> yeah, doing it on multiple times. And then that's why you get – these these Gnostic weirdos yeah. that find an opportunity to come in and they marry libertarianism with bizarre um, spiritual beliefs. And it's a strange combination, but it had a pronounced effect on our entire society. And the conservative clergy that helped uh, support this kind of stuff are largely to blame for it. And the big, confused, yeah. messed up world that we're in today. Yeah, and I I... I want to get into Gerald Hurd a little bit as well, because I, I yeah. spent a good amount of time talking about him right? and um, just his impact on American Christian, American spirituality in general, including Christianity. Um, and it, he was running around with Aldous Huxley, Bill Wilson. I was, I, I didn't know much. I had heard a little bit about yeah. Bill Wilson and AA, well, but that's I, a big wow. deal. Yeah, it's a big that's deal. A big deal. Big yeah. deal. And uh-huh. uh, the role of LSD and and all that stuff and and before you dive into that um it's interesting because i'm reading through that section and i'm going okay how does how does this play because you know in sort of the the from the public perspective the conservative movement or the the ideologies of conservatism don't really jive with this free love 60s drug you know that kind of thought yeah but then uh, you, you, I mean, you address it in the book, but and it was, it was interesting because as I'm starting to question it, you addressed it. It was uh, almost, um, almost like you knew what I was thinking <laughs> reading through mm-hmm. some of that. And, um, I try to write for skeptics. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was because very well I don't done. see the point in writing stuff that everybody already feels good about accepting. Right. I mean, we already have ditto heads and certain conservative talk radio. Why, why do I need to do the same thing? Yeah. And I think it's, it's, it's some of the leadership and then the, the, corporate interests involved and you know you get into different areas with bohemian grove and stuff like that but yeah right. tell us a little bit about gerald hurd and then his influence because it's it's pretty substantial i didn't realize he was such a big part of this well it was never the plan when i started the book you, mm. you start a big effort you know i cover soup to nuts in this book it's the one book that if i die I think I've contributed something just for this one book and i got a lot more plan to release yeah in fact the next version of this book you're going to find out how many of our major Christian ministries are funded by the Koch brothers. Right. <laughs> and when I find out in their tax forms, uh, the year that they started getting Coke money through intermediary pass-throughs, they changed their gospel message. Wow. They start taking a different message as soon as they start getting that money. <laughs> the The other yeah. thing as I show in there is how many of our, the very top tier of our um, Christian ministries and even like the top Christian school in America – were not only funded and saved, but operated and managed by the Unification Church. Wow. And Reverend Moon. Yeah. And then it really gets bad in volume three because I go back to the Billy Graham Association and find out that he was in some of the, well, not him, 
but his his organization right. made strange bedfellows with some of the darkest antichrist elements you would ever think and they were welcomed with open arms not only by by him but all of the evangelical leaders across america yeah there's there's a lot that has not been told but regarding gerald hurd this is a guy who who basically documenting the history of spiritual mobilization which went to all of our clergy in america supremely influential this was the main party organ. That and another one called Christian Economics by a Howard Kirshner were the ones that cemented this whole idea that government is evil, that taxes are evil, gov- uh, any kind of government welfare assistance is evil, jobs programs are evil, taxes for businesses are evil, businesses are what saves society. And they hit this like a drum, and when you saturate people with it, people start believing it. Um but uh, along with the progression of spiritual mobilization in the 50s, um, the guy who took it over, he, he, he was the main counsel and one of the main guys running spiritual mobilization. He took over from the first prosperity gospel preacher, James Fifield, in the book. And uh, this gentleman had a bizarre spiritual experience where it was like he had sort of like an out-of-body kind of experience where now, now th- these are the people running writing to all of our conservative christian clergy uh they were the christianity day before christianity day well he had this experience where he felt like he was sort of filled or possessed by the spirit of his deceased daughter he took this sigil for a name that he called christopher as her spirit and then he tried to figure out what happened to me what was this experience i had all this is in southern california mm-hmm. In fact, most of the narrative, I'm sure you noticed, of yeah. this whole history book is in Southern California. Yeah. Um, and uh, so there, there's a guy who comes up at different times with Bill Wilson of AA and others, this Reverend Opitz, who, who's always sort of flirting with this occult stuff while he's a mainstream. I think he was a Catholic priest. He recommended finding this Gerald Hurd guy to explain to him what happened to him spiritually. And Gerald Hurd, this British chap who was even old at that time. Uh, put him on a path of what we would call New Age spiritual enlightenment. He built the first place that predated Esalen. Basically, Esalen was based upon this New Age retreat he built. And all of this stuff gets passed forward to the Christian clergy because he made Gerald Hurd one of the regular writers in the spiritual mobilization Faith and Freedom newsletter. And Gerald Hurd... um, Came from England. Um, he was a sort of a slight built, very, a little effeminate kind of boy, um, but but he had a very fertile imagination, very smart. He got beat up a lot. He found out that what kept people from beating him up was if he started telling these long, convoluted tales. Hmm. And I think they would get sort of these bullies would get raptured by it and then just lose interest. And I think that imprinted on him that that became just his natural way of operating. And people would impute on him some kind of deep mystical knowledge without ever being able to understand really fully what he said. Mm-hmm. He had a lot of words. And, of course, a lot of preachers I hear these days I'd put in the same category. But but he had this skill to the point – well, he ended up going down to London. He was going to be an Anglican priest. Um, but some of his views he found too confining. Uh, and that was a pretty rough time. You know, there was guys like Aleister Crowley that were going that right. route. And they beat the crap out of him, you know, and kept telling him he was the beast. 
And, you know, with that kind of uh, expression of Christian love, he finally accepted that he was the beast. He'd been told that by enough Christians that he accepted it. Gerald Hurd had a similar experience. And the whole class system of the British, which we inherited some of their traits, mm-hmm. um, he sort of rebelled. And when he went down to Bohemian Artist District in London, um, he let his homosexual tendencies come out. He had a young man who became his patron who was sort of a, um, a listless, um, you know, directionless heir to a supermarket fortune. So he could bankroll mm. all these activities that, that he did. He got in with some of the other homosexual famous artists like W.H. Auden and other writers and authors. But he got to know um, Aldous Huxley, the author of Brave New World. They got to be good friends. They were pacifist. Um, even H.G. Wells was captivated by Gerald Hurd. Because Gerald Hurd was the science correspondent for the BBC. Mm. And H.G. Uh, Wells said he was the only man he listened to on the BBC was Gerald Hurd because he was fascinating. Even a guy like him was won over by the style of this guy. Well, <clears throat> they didn't want to fight in World War II. So Aldous Huxley and his wife and child and Gerald Hurd and his patron uh, got on a ship and came over to America in 1937. Um he had also been exploring other things like uh, paranormal kind of things. Uh, supposedly he was being offered a position as a professor at Duke. Uh, something they didn't like, it fell through, so his job wasn't there. They went to go see, I think is it J.H. Ryan, the father of the ESP movement that invented the ESP cards, flashcards. They went to check all that out. They went to check out someone who was the first famous um, – channeler of like old spirits where they would have like a previous life experience. This person, Bridie Murphy, first time it really popularized it. This is the kind of stuff he was into. So he was doing all this while he was in America. He'd inherited some property, but they started making their way West. Aldous Huxley um, heard that the way, only way to make money writing was not writing the books he was doing. It was to be a Hollywood screenplay writer. So he wanted to get there and finally get paid decent for writing. And he did. He got there and, Sold a Pride and Prejudice screenplay and some other stuff he was doing. And eventually, Gerald Hurd made it there, too. They got a piece of property, which I guess was still affordable in the Hollywood Hills. And there was a little shack out, probably a gardener shack. And he was sort of a mystic, ascetic mystic. So he just lived in this little shack. Um, But he built this enormous following. He became the guru of Southern California. And so you had guys like the TV Tonight Show host, Steve Allen. Igor Stravinsky, um, this uh, Mullendore, William Mullendore, who who ran the main utility, uh, Southern California Edison. He was his guru. All these famous people, uh, Greta Garbo, are following Gerald Hurd. And people would ask him, like, well, what did he say? Well, I don't know. He he talked a lot about changes in the world and new things and new technologies, but they never could put their finger on it, but they thought it was wonderful. And this was the melting pot at the same time where you had uh, Jack Parsons, you know, who was operating through Aleister Crowley and had guys like John Carradine and others coming to their their mass, you know, the Antichrist. You had Manly P. Hall, who became a friend of the of the spiritual mobilization guy, basically published their book. All this stuff was a melting pot. Uh, Gerald Hurd got real close to Krishnamurti. Who was the guy that Annie Besant and the Theosophists have labeled the world messiah, right. who rejected that but still formed his own religious movement. So there was all a rat pack. And I mentioned a case in there where they would take off with Charlie Chaplin and Greta Garbo and all these famous people and would just 
you know, go off on a hike and would get harassed by the cops and stuff like that. But Gerald Hurd built this huge following, but he was always about 20 years ahead of everybody. Hmm. And one of the things he really got in early in the, well, first of all, he wrote a UFO book. There's another world watching us. Uh, and he had, he had proposed this thing that there was like a super intelligent colony of bees that ran Mars and all sorts <laughs> of other weird stuff. But, but anyway, he was very, very popular. Um, but, um, he started meeting more and more of these people in the corporate world that were, he was getting them into really weird esoteric religious movements. But, um, he started getting into entheogenic drugs first, like peyote, mescaline. Uh, there's certain evidence that possibly Aleister Crowley gave him his first stuff at a meeting in London or Berlin, excuse me. Mm -hmm. But anyway, he started promoting it and then he got Aldous Huxley into it. And, um, that's where Aldous Huxley wrote, the Doors of Perception, which is where the rock band The Doors got their name from. Right. This was the early stuff where they started exploring with mind expansion. Well, the main thing of Heard and the other guys, some of them were connected to, I think it was the Monarch Project and the, uh, I'm trying to remember the other CIA projects where they used LSD. He was getting large quantities from Dr. Osmond in Canada and these other guys who were in this pretty dark stuff, getting their hands on it. And it was all going to CEOs. The guy who was the founder of Ampax, I think up there in the Bay Area, you know, the tape drive company, mm -hmm. he was one of the early converts. But they had all the CEOs in America, conservative CEOs, using LSD. And they were looking at it because all they ever look at is profits. Right. They were looking at how could they use LSD to control the worker, which is really what the a Brave New World was about. Yeah was using Soma and things Soma. like this to control work because the only thing they look of any value is making money. Yeah. And they got that from John Calvin and the Puritans. The only value worth anything is increasing money-making operations. So uh, as he proceeded with this, one of the guys who became his guru was um, Bill Wilson, founder of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I went through his biographers that had firsthand knowledge and you know, working with Bill Wilson in the book. Bill Wilson had a bizarre experience that was the thing that, that he thought turned him on to God. It was using henbane and these other things that give the experience of flight. And he said, if this is the God of the preachers, then I'm all in on it. Well, it turns out henbane creates this flight sensation, it, which is where it appears the whole legend of the witches riding on their brooms to the Sabbath right. because they would actually rub it on the broomsticks. That's the only way you could take it without getting sick mm. was that you would straddle it through your mucous membranes. And that's how you – so anyway um, – Bill Wilson was already starting going down this path. Well, he never had another experience like that. And um, so he got in with this esoteric stuff of Bill Wilson. Meanwhile, he's really big into spiritualism. Yeah, he had what they called the spook room at his house. Bill Wilson, mm -hmm. he would bring the guys who were from the Rockefeller Foundation that bankrolled AA, and they would have seances. And they would conjure real spirits that they all said, and they would find old sea captains, and then they would go do history and go on the spot and find out this obscure guy name that appeared before them died on that exact same day that they heard in the seance. And so all these people have written about this. Eventually, he started getting guys like Huxley and Hurd and others into his seances. He claims in his writing, and they had this writing with his Catholic priest, that the 12 steps were channeled from some um, ancient monk 
that um, that his Catholic confessor said was St. Boniface from the 15th century. So that's where he got all this information. So this is bizarre stuff. And I'm just, this comes from multiple biographers that yeah. have this. So he gravitated to Gerald Hurd, who formed the first kind of New Age retreat outside of Southern California called Tribuco College. The uh, theosophists were bringing things like Tibetan Book of the Dead there. And that's where Gerald Hurd started. He gave the first LSD to Bill Wilson of AA there. But Gerald Hurd was giving it to uh, Claire Booth Luce, the congresswoman who was married to the head of Time magazine. They were taking LSD together. All these famous people were doing it through Gerald Hurd, who was giving them spiritual guides through their experiences. And eventually he was doing that through Aldous Huxley. All of these guys who did spiritual mobilization for this conservative Christian stuff were also doing this LSD stuff with Bill Hurd. They, they formed a group called the Wayfarers to sort of take things to the next level, you know, out of body kind of stuff and things like this. One of the places they met was Bohemian Grove. Yeah. And if you remember in, in my writing there, um, I give a long narrative from one of the more secular libertarians that were supporting this activity, um, who, who's probably on the Mount Rushmore of libertarianism. And he talks about how he got his money for this activity from Bohemian Grove and yeah. gives a narrative of what it was like in the camps. Well, since I've written this book, I, I went and found out about the library of J. Howard Pugh, who was considered this very, very dour, super puritanical uh Calvinist, uh, Presbyterian, top-level official. Mm -hmm. J. Howard Pugh was considered, I mean, starched collar. Um, you know, you picture him like from the Puritan era days. Teetoler, didn't touch drink. Well, I found a, a folder in there called Bohemian Grove. <laughs> and so I, I asked for him to send me the information and was able to talk him into it because it was shut down due to COVID. I go through it, and not only was he invited to Bohemian Grove, by some of these people in this weird religious stuff, you know, he's he's bankrolling all the conservative Christian activity. But I read about him, you know, in the people he's meeting. He was there in the same camp, the caveman camp, where um, um, Richard Nixon, that was his camp. Well, he was there at the same time that Herbert Hoover was there, a bunch of other famous guys, and also the guy who, who did the nuclear bomb program. Because a lot of the main design programs of the nuclear bomb were at Bohemian Grove. The next meeting they did to develop the post-war military industrial complex was done the following week at Bohemian Grove, this meeting. But I thought, well, one thing I know he would not go to, this you know big Christian leader, he would not go to cremation of care. Right. An overtly occult event. Yeah. Well, what do I find in the records? Not only do I find the, the program for the cremation of care <laughs> that describes all of the details of what the writer of the cremation of care really meant. And it said a lot of the, you know, um, lower level people here, the Grovers don't understand the deep mystical meetings that are being communicating through cremation of care as a much deeper, you know, esoteric meaning. But I see notes on there from, from J. Howard Pugh's name saying, this is wonderful. I'm very inspired <laughs> by this with his initials on it. Wow. Okay, so I'm finding all this stuff out. How much he loved this overly pagan, dark occult activity. You know, I told you he was a teetotaler. Well, the next document in there, I find about the uh, the wine list and the winery, and he's noting about how wonderful all this is and stuff. 
So this is how much we know about these people, okay? (laughs) I knew the head of the Heritage Foundation. I had found other data that the Heritage Foundation was involved in the Human Grove. But, but, you know, even our our most foundational, you know, strict fundamentalist leaders hang out at that stuff, unbeknownst to us. But Gerald Hurd was invited in because of this James and Gepperson who had taken over spiritual mobilization to start writing the articles. Now, if your listeners are of a libertarian bent, they'll they'll know the name um oh no, I blanked out Lou Rockwell. He he's he's basically the voice of libertarianism. He runs mm-hmm. the Mises Institute there at Auburn. Um Ron Paul, you know, they they're part of the center of the universe. Well on on Mises.org that he runs, you can find these newsletters from Faith and Freedom. Because they were considered foundational to generating the libertarian movement. Mm. And in there, you'll find Gerald Hurd's articles. And, and trying to make sense out of them is crazy. <laughs> but, but what you find is he merged this belief with a libertarian belief that doesn't care about the welfare of anybody else. I mean, it sounds like you're, you're doing spiritual growth, but there's nothing in there about loving your neighbor in the slightest. And they started merging in uh, psychotherapy and psychologists more than they were theologians in it. It's a big messed up mess. Yeah. And this is what our this is what our conservative clergy seminary professors read. Right. And now when I go read their books, I I can find their phrases and see where they go back. Where they got it. Yeah. To this kind of stuff, and this was all another kind of psyop done by an outfit that's far bigger than the federal government. And that is our business community. Yeah. Our business community has a lot more resources than our federal government ever had and a lot more influence. And about all that our government can do when it's at its best is to try to rein in slightly what this juggernaut does. And that's why you see in Revelation 18, they're one of the last organizations standing. Yeah. And it takes direct intervention by God. Who, the group who traded in all of these commodities you read in there, you know, they used the term the great merchants of the earth mm-hmm. that were that were in cahoots with the kings of the earth. Mm-hmm. And it says by their sorceries, the whole world was deceived. Yeah, that's I'm quoting right out of Revelation 18. I can't think of a better way to show a modern day 20th century illustration how their sorceries deceived was how they bought the conservative Christian culture that I was raised in and still have a lot of fond memories of I appreciate the, the, the legitimate foundation, but this was the kind of sorcery ops that was done on our watch and our parents and grandparents watch. And now it behooves us to how we're going to react to it. Are we going to perpetuate it because maybe we benefit from it? You know, it's, I tell you, if you want to speak their message, you'll find all sorts of money coming in your coffers yeah. to run your ministry. Yeah. You know, in my in my next book, I'll I'll show again the the huge buckets of money it goes is if you will preach a pro business religious message that's against public assistance or anything like that, you'll have all the money you ever needed. If you'll speak to anybody that big business sees as a threat, you'll never have problem running your Christian ministry. Yeah, and that's why it's the only ones that can take them down is God Himself. And when you look at Revelation. There's only one real guideline given in there within the body of the of the text to take for the reader. It says to get out of Babylon to not and it talks to the children, you know, the, the children of God. 
get out of Babylon and be not partakers of their sins so that you do not participate in their judgments. Hmm. So I don't know how close we are to that. I think we're pretty close. I talked on another show while everybody else is worried about an asteroid coming and hitting Earth. <laughs> and you probably know who I'm talking about. You know, they're pitching this kind of stuff or whatever, some kind of foolishness to be scared of. Meanwhile, in the last, I was talking on another show about this, the last 38 years, men's testosterone has dropped 58%. Their sperm counts have dropped by an equivalent amount. They're, even their reproductive organs of humans and other species are, are, are being modified in the sense that it doesn't appear like we can continue to reproduce after one or two more generations. You know, and we're worried about all the silly stuff. And so we could be really close to the wrap up for reasons that aren't even being talked about right, right now. You know, and it's because they say that the chemicals that make our plastics flexible, like shower curtains, the stain treatments that we put on our on our fabrics. This is the kind of innocuous stuff that's starting to have this reproductive effect. So we could be real close to when we see these judgments, just not for the reasons why the, the normal crowd says we should be looking at. But if it is then we better darn understand what the great city Babylon is and start figuring out how do we get out of it. And I don't mean going off the grid. I don't mean just, you know, eating grape nuts or, you know, whatever. But what I mean is how has it affected in here? How do we get out of between our temples, our value system about what God cares about in this world and what he doesn't care about in it? Whose water are we carrying? That's where we got to get out of Babylon. And you can know you're probably on the right path when you hear most Christians criticizing you. Yeah. And I look back in history and I found that's consistent. When you got most Christians criticizing you, like what happened to you? That's when you're hopefully on the right track. Now, you could be just in a bizarre cult. But <laughs> if you do take the right path, you're going to have even people you normally trust and had common cause with. They're going to ask you what's wrong with you. And that's why Jesus said. You will lose brothers, mothers, sisters, and others when you follow me, but you will also gain other brothers, sisters, and mothers in this world and the world to come. Yeah. So we have to be our own. We got to be careful that we don't deceive ourselves, you know, and constantly test what we're doing. But if we remember who the cornerstone is, the words, the person and work of Jesus Christ, and then look at all of the words of the apostles and the prophets squaring that foundation with the cornerstone Jesus Christ that that will keep us safe it won't keep us safe from criticism from other institutional christians but it will keep us in good stead in the kingdom of heaven and that's all that really matters yeah yeah i think you uh you landed the landed the plane fairly well there um but i do want to mention and you brought up his name earlier gk chesterton i was fascinated yeah. by some of the uh, just just his writings uh, criticizing both capitalism and socialism, and um, he had written about this concept called distributism, and um, it's it's really interesting. I I told you in, in an email that it perked yeah. my interest because yeah, the uh, you know right now there's a big movement happening with digital currencies and cryptocurrencies. And there's a lot of younger folks who see the inherent problem with big corporations and big banks and, and yeah. just the whole thing. 
And they're really in on this bandwagon for decentralization, decentralization. They really want to decentralize, decentralized government, decentralized banks, decentralized big tech. And, you know, we, we, you've been talking about Babylon and this economic system. And in theory, I don't know. I don't know if it's actually fully applicable in, in, in sort of a real life situation type of thing. But in theory, uh, the reason why the popularity of something like Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies is on the rise is because of its nature of decentralization. It destroys the the business model of central banks inherently decentralized as opposed to central banks. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and so there's a, an appeal there. And uh, in some practical sense, it makes sense. And, it, and it, I can see how it, it really does change it with you. You had mentioned how the Internet, it's a modern day miracle that we can sort of communicate and find information about anything. Well, it, it, on top of the Internet, there should be a monetary exchange of value that happens just as easily between two people anywhere in the world, just as we're able to communicate anywhere in the world. Yeah. And that's been hindered. That's it's been the last part of the internet that hasn't really been adopted. It's the economics. It's the money. And so it's fascinating to watch all the hubble up just everywhere. It's all kinds of directions. People adopting it. People flipping, saying it's going to crash and go to zero one day. And then you know, like the uh, Goldman Sachs was saying, it's garbage for many years. And all of a sudden, they're like, hey, we have this thing for for Bitcoin and all this. Everybody's flipping. Um, but before we even talk about that, I do want to mention and, and just get your opinions about G.K. Chesterton and distributism because uh, I wasn't too familiar with it. I was familiar with G.K. Chesterton mm-hmm. and, and had yeah. heard of him, you know, talked about with apologetics, uh, people in apologetics and just defending the faith. Um, I hadn't realized he had uh, I learned recently that he converted to Catholicism from Anglicanism right. pretty late in his life. Uh, right. Nevertheless, he wrote some of his material about distributism and, and just his whole philosophy was very fascinating. The the three acres and a cow, you know, the concept of, of distributing property. Um, so, yeah, just I want, I want to hear a little bit about G.K. Chesterton and, and, and uh, what you found out about him and how his yeah. philosophy applies to what we've been talking about here in sort of a, uh, not a solution per se, but just just an idea mm-hmm. to get us thinking about, okay, there's more to how we can uh, function without just buying yeah. into a capitalism or a communism or socialism. There are other ways that seem to, and I say seem to, you know, but I emphasize that, mm-hmm. reflect the values of uh, what the gospel represents. So, please. Yeah. Well, um, the reason why I cite G.K. Chesterton is right at the end of the book. Actually, the the book that I quote from, Utopia for Usurers, mm-hmm. and for your listeners who don't know, usury is basically charging interest. Yeah, it's it's one of the foundations of how capitalism works. I mean, probably the the simplest definition of capitalism is that it's it has a golden rule where he who has the gold makes the rule. Right. <laughs> right. The the world is run by who's ever sitting on money. You know, the J.P. Morgans or whatever, more than nobility or royalty or people's biggest army. When you really think about it, if you're sitting on capital, you can buy all those things. Right. You can buy governments. You can buy armies. You can buy whatever if you got the money. Um, 
And so um, that's where the usury part comes from because it's it's a key component about how people under capitalism get ultra, ultra wealthy without adding any value to their society. Right. And believe me, I've experienced this personally because, um, you know, a lot of my income after being a government scientist was my patents that I invented and sold to some companies. One of them was a billionaire guy who, um, you know, had a company and I got to learn about that class of people from my working class background by being around them. And what I found and I mentioned in my book from my experience was was that these big capitalists that have these big money and venture capital and whatever, most of them I don't find are super bright. Uh, you'll meet <laughs> the rare innovator. I mean, I mean, there are a few out there, but they're rare. Most of them are not real sharp, but they either inherited money or they did something or they made widgets. Maybe they did something that we wouldn't feel comfortable ourselves doing, but somehow they got their money. And from that point, they don't add any value to the system other than they just hold the the strings, and you go grovel before them to have enough money to bring something to market, and they keep 99.9% of the share. Right. Well, that's how Calvinism works. I mean, it's just just the way it is. Um, but usury was partly how they get there. And um, G.K. Chesterton, um, this book was mentioned by a good friend of mine who listens to all of our shows, and I was surprised that they read it, and I, it's not long. Uh, but I thought, man, this is great because um, – Back in that day, it was written in 1917, uh, you could still be a Christian and critique capitalism and not be thrown in the lion's den, unlike today. You know, I say, oh, well, you, you're, you must be a capitalist if you critique it, which I guess all the Bible is because it does a whole lot of critiquing of it. So I yeah. guess the whole book's communist, but um, you could get away with it then. The other thing is, if I assume most people think I'm a nutcase for everything I write in here, although although I meticulously document uh, both the scriptural positions and the historical positions in the book, I thought, well, maybe if they hear from a guy like a G.K. Chesterton, just maybe they might take it seriously what I'm talking about here. Chesterton was probably one of the two greatest giants of intellectual theology of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's some other great guys up there near the top, but um, for a lot of people, Chesterton and C.S. Lewis are considered the two greats. This goes back to an era when Christian leaders could go toe-to-toe with the great thinkers of the world. Right. I mean, even Bertrand Russell and these other guys really respected the genius of G.K. Chesterton. Now we got guys like David Barton and these other people who may or may not have a high school education, but there are there are leaders. And I can find mostly kids in high school that think our Christian leaders are ridiculous, uh, much less these giants. So it's a treat to go back and read a real thinker who's also a Christian. Yeah. And it, but the other main reason I mentioned this book is that the overwhelming bulk of the book is him commenting on the capitalism that is taking over Western society at that time. Yeah. Now, it was maturing. Capitalism was maturing at that time, but we hadn't seen anything yet. We hadn't had post-war. We hadn't had the Internet age, all these new developed computer age. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was enough there for him to draw major spiritual concerns mm. because you'd already seen at this point the Gilded Age. And if people haven't studied, I mean, if they want to see what ultimate libertarianism is, like the real dream of libertarianism, look at Charles Dickens' London that you read about in um, 
Ebenezer Scrooge, you know, Christmas Carol or right. Oliver Twist. That's the ultimate dream for libertarians. You've got an elite that are unaccountable, that are just making money as fast as they can, and then there's, there's the riffraff, everybody else. And they feel like that's natural selection because it's Darwinism. Mm. It's like much of conservatism, it's social Darwinism. Whether it's, you know, law of the jungle in the marketplace or gunboat diplomacy, whatever it is, it's that's what it is. You know, they'll fight Darwinism and the origin of our species, and then they embrace social Darwinism. Right. And I'm talking right. about just in the church. Yeah. Um, so uh, at this time, we'd already seen the Gilded Age, where literally, I mean, places like, what was it, Newport, Rhode Island, where all of the, you know, the um, idle rich that we had in America would actually have parties nonstop where they would have sandboxes with rubies and diamonds for the sand, where they would just kick up and throw up rubies and diamonds. Yeah. Meanwhile, almost all of America is illiterate. They're living in squalor and tenements or, or in their minds while they're living that way. Okay, we had the robber barons, which is what caused the progressive movement and the social gospel, all that kind of stuff. Eventually, the New Deal to try to bail us out of the Great Depression. And so, but in 1917, a lot of that was already in full sway. And so he could see the handwriting on the wall. Uh, the basic criticisms he gives of socialism are pretty benign at that time. He basically says they're a little naive. And he says they use a lot of academic long words that create a difficulty in the common man understanding where they're coming from. Um, but the bulk of his writing is about the businessmen that make everything about money, business, and very banal. And that's mostly what he says. They even corrupt artists. Right. Yes. He says artists don't only point. do artistry because of beauty or because we all share it. It's because it is a money generating thing. Yeah. I thought that was so on point because – that's exactly what we've seen. You know, I was a big yeah. music fan growing up and it was all right. about finding those bands that had talent. And we, I mean, in my lifetime, I just watched talent erode for whatever sells. <laughs> it's just yeah. a pretty, it's amazing. And right. you even hear comedians, uh, current comedians talk about in the last 20 years, you know, we had these CEOs, yeah. it changed. They, they were about looking for talented people and then and it changed to bottom line. And they experienced the shift and culturally we've seen it. So I, I thought he was just so on point describing right. the, the threats of capitalism a hundred years ago. Every piece of art is now commissioned to sell soap, basically. Right, right. Yeah. And, you know, I'm not a Catholic. I have no plan to be a Catholic. Yeah. I've criticized him plenty over time. Mm -hmm. But what he and others have said is starting to be a little bit of truth. In the Catholic world, for all its negatives – they saw a beauty in doing things for beauty's sake, like a great cathedral would be built or, you know, like the Renaissance commissioning Michelangelo to do these frescoes and mm -hmm. things like that. The, the beauty of it itself was its own value yeah. to society, reflected God. Now, I'm, I'm a very down-to-earth kind of guy, working class, I'd rather see that money go to the poor. But I understand that, that, they, that they had at least unselfish motives in what they were doing. Sure. What happened is, and, and he doesn't get into so much, but but others in the literature, historians do, is that that really changed with John Calvin. John Calvin started teaching along with telling us all that God God's pleasure is to send the overwhelming majority of people to the lake of fire, and there's nothing they can do about it. And that's what actually he enjoys. 
That's that's the dystopian God that we've been given. But the other thing he taught in what we now call the Protestant work ethic started at Geneva mm-hmm. was that the only worthwhile labor in time that man can spend here was in generating things that were revenue generating themselves, mm-hmm. i.e. building businesses. Uh, otherwise, you're sort of wasting your time mm-hmm. unless you're doing something that starts generating more and more money and then it feeds on itself. And now we inherit that like it's an inherent virtue. Yeah. Now, it is a virtue to be self-sufficient and not be a burden on other people. Right. I always tell young people that, you know, if they want to save the world, save yourself first in terms of being self-sufficient, then do that. And so he didn't even get into that part of why it got that way. But he does reflect that that's exactly how it was going on with capitalism then, and it certainly is now. Anything they see of value, they would not be a patron of a wonderful artist to paint a great painting or to write a great orchestral piece. It would be to do something that they could put a commercial on the end of it that would generate revenue. That was what they valued art. And it's in every kind of, whether it's literature, you know, visual art, whatever, that's the way they do it because that's their value system. And he says, basically it just makes everything trite, banal and ugly. Mm Mm-hmm. He even got to the fact, which amazed me, I thought he was like Jules Verne in this regard. He talked about as capitalism continues to proceed, um, the, our prison population is going to expand hugely. Mm. It may be more um, polite, a little more humane, but it's going to be enormous. And I think what he meant was it's going to be a lot of debtors prison. A lot of people, they get behind on stuff. And I think you could see a lot of crime done that way too. Yeah. Uh, people get to point of no return getting out and they have no recourse. Of course, once you get a crim- prison record, you can't really get a regular job anyway when you get out. So recidivism is not surprising. But um, he was bold enough to say that capitalism did not equal Christianity and that their goals were not exactly both the same. Yeah. And in fact, it, it wasn't that it should be destroyed but that we need to understand somebody's got to keep an eye on it or it will eventually destroy everybody. Mm. And that's where I get to the position, you know, when you ask me about if I'm a communist or whatever like that, that's really the principle of my book is to say, I'm not out to offer you an alternative ology mm-hmm. other than to really seriously consider what God said. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. I'm a Christian. I, I take that seriously. Um, You know, the only society that God ever set up was in ancient Israel. And there were two critical components in terms of the economic system that God set up. I mean, it was largely a very libertarian marketplace, um, but there were two key components. And both of them were ignored by Israel, and they paid the price for it. One of them is every seven years, they had to have a Sabbath year. Mm -hmm. That Sabbath year, they had to let the land grow fallow because he said the land needs to rest. Mm. And I wonder if if that makes him some kind of gay worshiping tree hugger. <laughs> you know, I hope God's not that. <laughs> By actually thinking that, you know, sustainability was not a four-letter word and that, you know. But the other thing was is that why you let it go wild? He said, take the year off. Yeah. Take a break from work and take literally take a sabbatical. Let the land grow up. And let anybody who happens to wander on your land help themselves. Mm-hmm. And you know what? I guess if you wanted to wander over your neighbor's yard, you could do the same thing. But it's you're, you're not going to be obsessed for one year out of seven 
with guarding your turf and your property and be obsessed with raising your yields right. and your wealth. You're going to let your, your own self, your own spirit rest. Meanwhile, other people coming along, the stranger he mentions, which is the immigrant, the outsider, alien, or the poor, they can help themselves. And, you know, you're not there supposed to be checking their um, welfare card or their, their citizenship card. This is not a kind of thing we're going to be checking, doing means testing. It's just everybody's going to do it. And I'm going to bless you enough that you're going to have enough the other years. And unless you're stupid or greedy, you'll have plenty to be comfortable and have a good life. They never did it. The other thing it was told to do, and this is going to really sound satanic. So I just want to warn your listeners, (laughs) set up in the chair because here's some good satanic talk. God said they'd have a year jubilee, which was a redistribution of wealth. Mm. Everything went back to the original families every 50 years. Um, And and I would say, you know, people would call that redistribution of wealth. I would call it restoration of wealth Mm. because what it reflects is a reality that we don't accept in conservative Christian world where I was raised was that an inevitable fruit of unregulated capitalism is inevitably all the wealth is going to end up in a handful of hands. Yeah. And if people doubt that, I would suggest that they go start searching online for statistical data about the different percentile groups of wealth and how much of our wealth is holding whatsoever the population and look at the trend just in the last generation. Yeah. It is a disaster course. Yeah. Yeah. If our lack of reproductive capability doesn't kill us, then the 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 smaller and smaller tenth of one percent that's getting the majority of all of our society's wealth is going to lead to another French Revolution out of desperation, and they are going to lose everything. The people who are greedy and don't want to share their wealth are going to even lose that very violently, mm-hmm. and it's irrefutable. Uh, I put a lot of those statistics in my book, along with a lot of misnomers that I hear in Christian media about how crooked everybody is who gets welfare and they all buy T-bone steaks and drive Cadillacs. You know, they get it. And mostly we're talking about a, a couple of hundred dollars a month, a largely for single women whose husband left them. And they're trying to buy time to get a nursing degree to get back in the workforce. That's the classic motif of most of them. Are there a handful that abuse the system? You're darn tootin'. And they have systems to try to wean those people out, but they're not going to get everybody. Yeah. But And then you got people on drugs and other people who are pitiful. That the only thing you respect them for is that they were created in God's image. You know, you're, you, you rehabilitate who you can, but we have a mental health crisis and a drug crisis that makes all of our other problems. Yeah. That and a heartlessness crisis. But um, Chesterton addresses all of these points of how it takes away the virtue from a society particularly those who call themselves a Christian society. Um, but I, f- I forgot to mention there was one of the, 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 the Jubilee um, where the land goes back to the original hands to keep this centralization of wealth. Mm-hmm. Captives are free. And, you know, they would actually blow shofars then. All these Christians like to blow shofars now. They they blew it in the Capitol insurrection. They yeah. all QAnon blow the shofar. They blew it then because it was a cause of celebration. It was a liberating of everybody in society when the jubilee happened um there's at least a couple prophets that i quote in the old testament 
that tell the people that you are going into captivity in Babylon for every year that you violated the Sabbath, the seven-year Sabbath. So you didn't let the land rest for 70 years, so God says, I will let it rest for 70 years. Mm. So they it got a rest for every year that they got parked in Babylon. Also, they never gave the poor back their, their, their land that they were supposed to do the Jubilee. They enslaved a lot of their fellow Jewish people. God told them, judge what was coming to the prophet soon. So they released them, and then they said, oh, we don't have anybody to clean our house and do our landscaping. So they went back and re-instituted uh, slavery. So eventually, when they were hauled off, Nebuchadnezzar, of all people, went and gave all the land back to the poor. Because the poor were the only ones left. All the noblemen got hauled off to Babylon, so the poor ended up with the land anyway. Hmm. So, you know, when you try to ignore God— and the things that he's trying to do for you to have a healthy, mutually prosperous society where everybody can be had, when you ignore that because of short-term greed, which is possibly a, a best definition of capitalism I can think. It's a, it's a greed-based value system. Yeah. Um, you're going to pay eventually. God will make sure you pay. It may not even be your generation. maybe your kids. But, but you're going to pay. I think that process is already beginning right now. It's unsustainable what we have. Um, so – that's all I'm saying is that uh, the Bible shows that he instituted secular Gentile governments to make sure, and every one of the prophets said this, so that the poor got justice in the courts and they didn't get rooked just because they were poor and that they didn't get ripped off in the marketplace because of the dishonest weights and measures or whatever sophisticated thing they use today to represent it. Maybe it's a fractional reserve lending system today or fiat mm-hmm. currency. Okay, that's it. It all goes back to the dishonest weights and measures. So that's a big deal to God. Yeah, it it it, it would not not be a big deal if he didn't have every single prophet tell him this was a big deal. This is what I'm judging your nation on. In fact, it goes so far that if you go to I think is it is it Psalm 81 where where it has the sons of God in it. 82. Psalm 82. Psalm 82 talks about the assembly of the sons of God, mm-hmm. the Benai Elohim who rule over the nations of the earth. Mm-hmm. Everybody sort of stops him and says, well, gee, that's a proof text that they exist and they run the nations of the earth and they move on and they don't bother to read the rest of the brief chapter. What it says is it is says that they're going to be judged and they're going to die like men. But what does it say they're going to be judged for? It says they're going to be judged because they denied the poor Mm -hmm. and the stranger their due. Yeah. And that they called out from help to God and they turned a deaf ear. So both they and the human instruments of the great city Babylon that do their bidding for them and government and business and sometimes us in the Christian world that help them out in that. Yeah. Um, we're subject to that judgment. And so, you know, if he goes all the way to the archons and the principalities and powers and say, by the way, I want to let you know that how you treat the poor and how you treat the immigrant is how I'm going to judge you. How do you think the rest of us flunkies, how he's going to treat us? <laughs> <laughs> There's no inconsistency in scripture about no, this. No, not at all. And it's yeah. nothing that it's back burner or it's a secondary tertiary issue. It's an upfront issue. Yeah. So what do we worry about in our conservative Christian culture? The war on Christmas. <laughs> People aren't saying Merry Christmas. Right. You know, I mean that's that's what we're wringing hands over. Yeah. Which is and like the most I'm, corporate. I'm saying, we, we, <laughs> we, 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 it's like we're not connected to the vibe. Yeah. We, we don't understand what the big thing is with God. And this is what really scares me. And I don't say this arrogantly because 
I have to check myself. You know, when I see these passages, which I think is the scariest passage in the Bible of all these people who said, Lord, didn't we do all these great things yeah. in your name and cast out demons and all that? Mm -hmm. And they're shocked when he says, I don't know who you are. Yeah. Get away from me. Now, a lot of the other people that we see at the Great White Throne Judgment, they willingly chose their own way. And if I had to boil the kingdom of heaven, teaching Jesus in a nutshell, it's basically, and it all makes logical sense. He is creating an eternal society in the kingdom of heaven. It's going to last forever. The only way a society can last eternally is if it's built on universal non-selfishness. Yeah. Any speck of selfishness, which is what is the engine of capitalism, competition, who comes out on top, any speck of that over time will destroy the any almost near-perfect society. And in fact, this earth, which has an unestimable amount of natural resources and wealth, how quickly they're using up the resources, polluting it and, to make that last penny. Yeah. And how they're taking something that should have lasted for, you know, millions of years and in a few generations they're running it into the ground. So so really if you if you boil down all the things in the in the Beatitudes and certain amount, it's just that the only way this place is gonna run is everybody's gotta be unselfish. They you know, maybe it's that dreaded collectivism, but basically just say we gotta look out for each other. You know? Maybe yeah, it's, it's like QAnon says, where we go one, we go all. But but from a welfare standpoint, we're all in it together because that's how the kingdom of heaven works. And Jesus says, don't you trust me to take care of you? Yeah. Can't you rest one year and let the land rest and, and let people help themselves that are needy? I mean, basically, that was a 15% tax for the poor. Now, people would howl if we had a 15% tax for the poor. But that's what God said to do. Yeah. You know, can't you rest and trust me to make sure that you get the needs that you need? Yeah. And so that's that's where we're at. Are, are you willing to do that or not? And, and I think anyone who says to God, you know what? I'm willing to live in an unselfish culture and an eter eternal society, and I will trust you for my needs. He says, welcome in. Coming, in, coming into my kingdom. And for those who don't like it, I like looking out for number one. I'm used to looking out for number one. That's how our society works. That's how I've been trained, even in my church teaching. Then you have to go a place where there's competition and where there's everybody climbing to get to the top. Right. And it's a place called the Lake of Fire. Yeah. Because even if it was paradise, after all you all get there, it will be Lake of Fire pretty soon, yeah. even just on its own motif. So, you know, this stuff is all basically pretty fundamental. Yeah. You know, somebody challenged me the other day. They said, are you a fundamentalist? <laughs> now, Christian, I said, you know, I thought about it. I thought, well, yeah, I guess I am a fundamentalist, but I'm sure doing a lot of thinking about what the fundamentals are. Right. That's a very important question that nobody asks. Yeah. Yeah, these labels. yeah I mean, I do believe in fundamentals, but hey, let's go back and really make sure we got what the fundamentals are. What are the fundamentals? And that's, and that's a worthy debate, but scripture should inform our debate you know, on what they are. Yeah. So that's really what all of this is about. And, and God instituted Gentile governments with a worthwhile, important goal until he comes, until he comes and runs it, mm -hmm. to be a watchdog for what he warned us in the Old Testament and the New, where the powerful in Babylon that will run the marketplace, they will run the courts, they will run all of these things, 
And your only hope is to have a collective of your neighbors to make sure that the poor get justice in the courts, because that's what he was tasking the leaders, whether it was a king or the elders or whoever. He says, that's what I'm judging you to do. And the sobering thing you think about in our country is that in our representative democracy or republic, how you want to refer to it, the ultimate leaders are us. It's you and me. We pick these people as representatives. They are our proxies. Right. Okay. We pick them. So in the first century, Christianity, people say, well, you don't hear a lot about this in the, in the Gospels. Well, in the first century, Rome ran everything. You know, there was no responsibility to the church on, on some of these things about how the government treated the poor, things like that, because they had no say. Yeah. I mean, they were, they were barely tolerated. Um, but now it's different. We got what we asked for. We wanted, we rebelled against Great Britain, and we've got this, so we now call the shots. Okay, now you call the shots. And, and the Lord says those who provide leadership over a nation have to make sure that the poor and the stranger are taken care of. And you know how he, how he phrased it to the Jews in the Old Testament. He says, you give the stranger, which is the, the immigrant, alien, outsider. He says, you give the stranger the same rights and the same love as you give to your fellow countrymen. And he says, why? He says, because you were once strangers in Egypt. Mm-hmm. He said that numerous occasions. Yeah. Because you were once strangers in Egypt. Now, all of us come from somewhere else. Either our grandparents or, you know, sooner than that or more generations back. We all came and we were those strangers. Somebody tolerated us and took us with open arms. Although there were Americans even in those days that didn't want those people there. And frankly, we wouldn't, you know, we wouldn't be here. We may not even exist biologically if somehow somebody didn't have enough mercy to let somebody build a life here. Right. But now the Christians are the ringleaders wanting to stop anybody else having a life. And it's not a question of whether it's orderly or whether we do it in a safe, secure way. It's it's expressed in abject contempt. It begins with an absolute contempt for mothers carrying children, fleeing civil war. You know, maybe this isn't the best place for them. But you know what? We still got a mother with a child fleeing civil war, and we got to do something about that. And I, for one, I'm at the point of thinking now that would it be possible for our fellow conservative Bible-believing Christians like myself and, and others, could we just take maybe a little sabbatical from the culture war? For just long enough so we could put all of our passion and energies and resources to making sure that all the refugees everywhere have somewhere place to have a house. Yeah. Just just long enough so we find them a place to live. Because, you know, I've been blessed, Gons. I haven't had to run for my life for my house. Now, that may change, you know, in a few years. But because I got a lot of neighbors around here that have guns and they're looking for a scrap of fight. So I don't know what the future holds. <laughs> but. Short of that, I've been blessed. I've never had a thing where I didn't worry somebody was going to come knock on the door with a gun and rape my wife or children or, you know, take everything I had and just try to get out of my life. But, you know, there's a whole lot of people in the world to have, and they're, they're parked in some dangerous camp with other criminals, and they're crying to God to help the best they know how. And we're worried about the war on Christmas or what people do with their curtains drawn in their own private lives and our ability to control that 
Well, we got these people crying out to God. They don't know how they're going to feed their kids. So yeah. may, maybe I have gone nuts since I've done Future Quake, and maybe that's just totally irrational. But that kind of thing is starting to make a lot of sense to me right now. Could we take a little break on this silly stuff and find out these people crying to God that we can't be at least a, a vessel to be used by God to find them safe place in Jesus name? And then we can get back and fighting over the trivial stuff. Yeah, that, That's how far afield I think we've gotten. And I, I, I agree with most of what you said there. And, and well, the the foundational stuff i agree with um i guess it's it's tough when the practical sort of um i guess not the application but just the the way in which that yeah. can be played out is so challenging because you know for example i you know there's a lot of stuff on youtube now as a creator you can there's like a on your dashboard as a creator on youtube there's a way you can Send money to charities and stuff like that. Right. Um, but there's a lot of distrust of charities too, because a lot of those are corrupt and they've mismanaged they the are. money and stuff like that. So they it's are. not so I recommend easy a place to- called Ministry Watch. Ministry Watch is a good, you know, conservative Christian group that holds people to the carpet. You know, they were the ones that helped expose Robbie Zacharias. Yeah. Yeah. And his massage parlors and all right. that. Right. Yeah. So that is important. But you know what? What I find most of us that live in any kind of town of any size have an immigrant community. In our own community. Yeah, that's true. I remember when we gave up our sofa here in Love Seat that we didn't need anymore. And I remember we took it to some folks here from Bhutan, you know, that had to leave and get out of Dodge quick. And, and they ended up in Nashville. You would have thought they hit the lottery. Yeah. Getting our cast offs. Yeah. And I, I, th- I, think, I think you're getting at a, a, what I was trying to get, get to is I think it's our individual responsibilities to do little things. We don't have to do this grand thing with some institution or 501c3 or some, some, you know, organization that's going to redistribute stuff. We can do things locally that make a difference. And I I think that's more important than trying to figure out, well, how much am I going to give to Red Cross or whatever it is? Right. Oh no, I don't, I don't dispute that at all. There are some issues that require government intervention yeah legal stuff like you know mothers being separated from kids and other kind of things like this where it's it's we insist that we have to do our thing individually in the circle where we are but there are other things collectively you know let's just i'll throw out an example slavery okay slavery 18th century okay um that problem really couldn't be practically solved by each of us individually although you might be able to buy a slave or find a place for them but it was an immoral sin. It was institutionalized. Yeah, and it was something that had to be addressed at a top level. Legal, yeah. To, to, to be able to stop it, right. and it was highly controversial. And you know who were the first people who spoke about it were the liberals, the Christian liberals, right. and they were scoriated. And in one of my books I write, I come from a Southern Baptist background, and this document that survived was from the head of the South, South Carolina Southern Baptist Convention, and the governor asked him to write about what's the Bible say about slavery. And it sounds just like a Southern Baptist document. I mean, it was all scripture-based. It was mm-hmm. all methodical and everything. And, and the conclusion was God is fine with slavery. <laughs> God is fine with it. It was in the Old Testament. It's in the we New. We were slaves. We are Paul, slaves. <laughs> well, Paul didn't talk about 
you know, uh, Onesimus to get rid of his slave. And, you know, they had all sorts of things. I always just a great biblical argument. Slavery was okay. And then they got into the practical things like, well, um, you know, those are all just warlords fighting each other. And if it wasn't this guy we bought is a slave, the other ones would have sold the other one into slavery. And we come over here, they hear about the gospel. Of course, we had to put shackles on them to do it, but they, they hear about it. And so they had all these arguments. And I'm sure the guy said, the governor, either he was cynically saying, okay, I've got political cover through this right. top religious official, or even my conscience feels better. Yeah. So now what has history said about that? In reflection, was was those people who were Bible-believing uh, Christians using sola scriptura, do we see them on the right side of history on what we think God's will is about that? Right. The thing, the thing that's violated is the thing that the fundamentalists will never acknowledge, and that is conscience. Mm. The thing that it violates is conscience because we know it's wrong. And the fundamentalists will say, that's not in the Bible. Well, actually it is. <laughs> God talks all the time about our conscience bearing witness. Yeah. And, you know, even when the council in Jerusalem met early in the book of Acts and they had to decide about whether the Gentiles had to keep the law, they really didn't use scripture to document their position. Their answer back in their letter to the other Christians was, they said, it seems good to us and to the Holy Spirit that you should do these things. Right. They believed that their conscience, fed by the Holy Spirit, could could actually, you know, and of course they fought it out and had all sorts of views. But when your conscience is violated about something, you better listen to it. Yeah. And don't try to use the Bible as a weapon to justify yourself, because that's what the Pharisees did all the time. Mm -hmm. Pharisees used it all the time with things their conscience should have automatically known was terrible. That they were doing. Jesus said they raided widows' homes and did all this other kind of stuff like that. You know, you had a guy like uh, Nicodemus, who I respect, because it took a lot of guts for him, even though he came at nighttime, he didn't want anybody to see him, to see Jesus. His, his conscience knew what was going on. Yeah. And he was, you know, willing to admit it. Some of them knew it on the Sanhedrin, but still didn't do anything because they just had an awful cushy position where right. they were. Yeah, yeah, I, I I recall. I think it was at the beginning of your book when you talked about Joseph, and um, how you know he usually has this reputation of being spotless. This early patriarch yeah. of the Bible. Uh, I'm named after him. That's my first name. <laughs> actually. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I was really fascinated to see some of the just the 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 way you broke down. The, the, his economics, basically, the way he yeah. treated the his own. It's right there in the end of the book of Genesis, and everybody yeah. flips past it real quick. And then don't stop to contemplate the implications right, of it. Right. I actually first wrote about that in actually a Tom Horn book, right. believe it or not. Yeah. Um, I think I think it was How to Overcome the Most Dangerous Issues You'll Face a Century. But anyway, um, it's right there in black and white. Where it, it's funny, the time I was asked to, to write that was right in the middle of the Great Recession, 2008, uh -huh. 2009, when – the government was taking over everybody's mortgage. Yeah. They were becoming the mortgage owners, yeah. you know, and then they were having to kick people out and everything like that. And it was an exact parallel to what happened then. There was a societal crisis. Um, they went, you know, G you know, Joseph told the government to go save up this stuff because this is coming, save right, it up. Right. 
but it really wasn't done necessarily for the benefit of the people. No, it was, it was done more for the benefit of the government. Right. Because what happened was they held it over the people. Either either they confiscated it for no money or they did it for pennies on the dollar because it was an abundance. Yeah. So they so they had the wherewithal to get it at at almost nothing in cost. And so then when the famine hit, it was worth gold. And the people didn't have enough. You know, they ran out of money eventually. And so then they just started having to hawk everything they had. They hawked their tools. They hawked their animals. Eventually, they turned over their land. And yeah. then they went into indentured servitude. And then they shift them all to government housing. Right. And they said, oh, we're going to be beneficial benefactors. We're going to let you work the land that now we own that was yours. Right. The tools that you used to have that's ours. <laughs> and we'll let you keep a little bit of it. And we'll take the rest. And all of that was sort of set up through the thing that Joseph did. Yeah. And the only people who came out okay, funny, were the pagan priests. Because they were paid in a commodity that would always have value, right. which is the point of the weird chapter that Tom Morn asked me to write for that book, was on fuel and food shortages. Hmm. And I was trying to find an analogy on why, what commodities you value. They look real hot at some time, but when things change, it's everything changes. Yeah. And that was a classic story out of the Bible. What they did was they got paid in food. Right. And because they got paid in food and their contract, I guess they had, they kept getting food. And so they never gave up their money. They never gave up their property. They were the only people that were still landowners other than the state. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. Now, <laughs> Didn't now hear that that's, one in that's church. how the old rider on the black horse yep. with the yeah. scales in his hands, you mm -hmm. know. Um, that was, I, I believe that that writer, you know, when they open those seals in revelation, I believe those are indictments hmm. because it is a court hearing, right? They're waiting for the judge to show up and each of those seals that open are indictments. Yeah. Uh, it's a long story. I come back and talk about it, but each one of those, including fake religion, that's coercive Christianity is, I think of the rider on the white horse and each one of them has it. And each one has their judgment in revelation. And that rider on the black horse that starts messing around with the value of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, they're real cute and they reign as Queens until the stuff starts raining down from the sky. Right. And all the merchants cry and say, Oh, it all disappeared in one day. Yeah. That's what you got to worry about when you get into a lot of speculative stuff, even in our money stuff now. Is because one thing can make it turn into zero. Right. Overnight, it can just turn into zero. And that's why I'm hyper conservative with how we handle what gets in the till here. Because I don't, not only do I not trust individuals that are doing it financially, and I've been burned in mm -hmm. some small business investments, but there are circumstances that happen, what they call black swan events that nobody knows are coming. Mm -hmm. And it changes everything. So it's so easy to be greedy. Yeah. Because, hey, that's capitalism. Right. That's how we've been raised. <laughs> right. Those guys are our heroes. The guys who took the real risk, if you really play your cards right and it's extra ruthless, we'll invite you to speak at our church. And you can have a tape series. All the other ones who the cards just didn't play all right, we forget about them. They're losers. They may have even been smarter. They may have been more virtuous. Yeah. But they didn't they didn't land at zero on the roulette wheel. So they don't have anything spiritual to teach us. It's the guy who put all this money on the zero wheel and it just happened to hit that. Oh, they must have some deep spiritual message. Let's go invite them to speak at right. our pulpit. Right. Although I don't, I don't know how much they have tape tape stuff. Now you said they have, 
They they what? What you say? <laughs> You'd mentioned the, the the they're gonna bring people on for the tape series, and I, I was yes, saying, well, hey, I'm an old school guy. <laughs> I was gonna say, I, I maybe not the tape series. But... Tape. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they could have my CD player in my car when they pried from my cold dead fingers. <laughs> What's with this digital stuff? Yeah, yeah. This this uh, non fungible token stuff. I don't know if you've seen any of that. Well, I have to tell you, and I'll confess to you and your audience. Okay, I'm gonna speak ill of myself. When I watch your Twitter comments, Gons, uh-huh. I don't understand about three quarters of it. <laughs> and I'm of a generation. I still feel like I'm a 14 year old on the inside, uh-huh. but I'm in a generation where I was already in my mid 30s before the internet came along. Right. Yeah. Which changed true. everything. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, before the everything. internet, you only knew what was going on in your neighborhood. Yeah. I mean, there was like three or four channels. Now, maybe not in California where you were. You know, you got Vampira and all that other kind of stuff. But, you know, we had three or four channels out here in flower country. Um, it was the same old Hollywood vaudeville comedians controlled all the TV. So there wasn't much you'd want to watch from them. Right. So we, we just lived in ignorance in the dark ages. You know, everything I knew about a band was what I saw in the liner notes on the back of an album. Yeah. I mean, I couldn't go search at people who are younger today. You, you get online and... 30 seconds, you know, everything a band did, you know, everything about them enough to where you're tired of them in 30 minutes. Yeah, Back true. then yeah. I went to the holiday Inn and went through crates and dug through albums. And it's like, Oh, here's a paragraph on here. That's all I know about <laughs> these people. And I didn't understand half of that. So, yeah. I mean, it, it was a dark age of ignorance, but also there was some mystery that I miss as well too. But the fact is things are changing so fast to me. It's like, one of my future quake guests, Alvin Toffler, the road future shock, mm-hmm. a generation reaches a threshold where the change is so fast that you get up to the top of your head and you can't keep up anymore. Right. And I bet you that even happens to you. Oh, it's starting it'd to be trust a lot me. Harder. <laughs> trust it's a lot me. harder for you than me. Cause I'm just a curmudgeon. I, I've noticed, uh, I've started to feel like I'm slipping down that mountain and it's, it's, I can feel it. I can feel it. And I know that, yeah. um, I often say that, uh, I am literally, I, I'm, I'm the oldest of the millennials. I'm, I am a sage millennial. So, oh, okay. uh, so, uh, and I'm the youngest of the baby boomer. I'm the last year of it. Okay. Okay. So, yeah. uh, I, I know that I, I, I always say that we're the last generation to be born in a world without internet. You know, I, I remember yeah. until about age yeah. nine ish, no internet, you know, TV was becoming a thing and you know, the radio and all that stuff was changing you know cassette tapes and vcrs to cds and dvd that was all happening but once the internet came around it was just completely a different game and then kids born these days my my stepdaughter who's almost 20 completely different world completely different you know and they're it's it's just a a different way of thinking different values so it's uh and and, Mm -hmm. you know it's hard to keep up with any of the stuff i don't i don't even know what's happening culturally anymore really i mean you talk about my twitter but i when i dive into the the bleeding edge of twitter i have no idea what's happening (laughs) i have no clue what's going on um i don't know why something's funny it's not a good way to for a time to be writing books like i do (laughs) because people have about a 20 second attention span on a good day and so this is like the stupidest thing to do in the world is to write. Well, if, if I thought I'll make a penny on it, which I'm not, but if I did, it's like nobody wants to get past past page five. Because, well, this is boring. It, you know, there's no robot stomping on a building in it, which I think every movie has to have robots stomping on buildings. Uh, my wife and I went to um, 
the movies. We don't go very often, but it was years ago. We went and we saw the previews, and, and I was sort of joking with her, laughing. I said, look, every one of these are robots stomping on buildings. <laughs> well, then they ran a commercial for Army recruiters, and it was Army recruiting. And what did they have there at the cinema? Robots stomping <laughs> on buildings. <laughs> and that was all it is. You know, I want a Transformer. He's going to knock on a building, CGI. And and there's so much thing going on on the screen at once. And now I see that that talk radio or news on TV oh, is starting to show yeah. this where you've got blurbs. You've got eight people talking at once on there and things flashing. <laughs> and I can't I can't keep track of all of it and the scroll <laughs> at the bottom. But people now have been geared where they do that. Everything's like a first person shooter. <laughs> you know? Yeah. yeah. But you really need to do that. You need to pick your 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 audience here. Like you just see their head and they're walking through all these guests talking at them and they can be shooting them to get rid of different <laughs> guests. You That's know, a good and if idea. the guest says something that gets them, you can see their, their life points sort of go down. <laughs> at least they can relate to it. Yeah, yeah. I like you this know, guest. Do, I like I don't uh-huh. like this one. Yeah. Right. And then they go, ah, and you shoot them, and then they go to the next one. And then if it makes them real boring, their life points start going down. And <laughs> they can get new weapons like, okay, here's a document I picked up, and it, it allows me to get rid of this false guest. You know? I, I think you're onto something. Future of, to, future of podcasting right there is just a giant first person shooter. And mm-hmm. you, uh, you and form just a own. lot of people all screaming at the same time. <laughs> I mean, that's the ultimate end game where we're going. Everybody's just having guttural primal <laughs> screams on the screen at once. Uh, yeah. So I was going to ask, yeah, what do you think? Where do you think society's headed? But I guess you just answered that question. <laughs> so yeah, I, that was my rosy inspirational picture. I'll never <laughs> be the next Joel Osteen. <laughs> It's okay. We're uh we're we're still working on taking down Oldstein on the on the ranks on the podcast. It's it's been a long yeah. road. It's uh Well if you need an anti Osteen, I'm <laughs> I'm sort of a disinspirational speaker. Oh well uh we appreciate your time and, and I'm sure the audience is thrilled to to have you back and to talk about these these issues. I do want to ask you one last thing real quick, and it's kind of a side yeah. issue. It's a little separate from the book. Uh but I am curious because um as we record this, we're about two months away from the intelligence agencies having to reveal to, I think, the Senate or the Congress uh, what they know about UFOs and unidentified yeah. aerial phenomenon. The Navy just released a night vision footage of these, the triangles. I don't know if it's the TR-3B or if it's some mm-hmm. kind of polygons flying in the air. What do you think is the agenda there? Is it just... Uh, more paradigm shifting distraction type of stuff, or or do you think they're going to really shift around and change, uh, or try to at least quote unquote reset some of the uh, the major doctrines in the world, whether it be technology or education? You know, when I spoke at the United Nations, I was invited there to NGO, right, and they were all spirit channelers and mediums. Mm-hmm. Um, Stephen Bassett was there and a lot of the talk was about UFO disclosure, mm-hmm. even at the UN thing way back 2008. Yeah. Um, I keep wondering when that time's going to happen or if they do, well, you know, one thing that it's not any different than what we've experienced the last few years is that I, I think the last few years have been a time for us to all find out what we're made out of. Mm. What, what, what are, what are your foundational values? What I have found out is most of the people that I've known for many decades, I didn't really know them. Mm. When push comes when push comes to shove, I found out that they were a lot darker than I thought they were. Things like like just basic virtues, 
I found how quickly they dispensed with them. Mm -hmm. And so when we have a crisis of it in our culture, society, I think the main thing it does is we just find out what people are made of. If there was an alien from somewhere else, you know, of course, I think we should all keep a healthy skepticism. Sure. Yeah. Uh, we should also say, is there a reason this is being shown? Mm. Who has any agenda for why they're showing it? And it doesn't have to be some kind of a cult thing. It can just be an economic or mm-hmm. some other control freak thing. Um, but let's say if you keep an open mind and you think there may be something there, that doesn't affect my Christian faith one iota. Mm-hmm. If, if God's dealing with somebody from somewhere else. Um, and let's say they're not a demon. Mm-hmm. Anytime you run into non-human characters, I always say you should check IDs. <laughs> Good call. So, I mean, when you, First you time. know, somebody comes to visit you in a vision or a dream or whatever like that, mm-hmm. you check IDs. You don't have to be ugly about it. You know, you just, just do it. And, and if they're from God, they won't be offended, mm-hmm. you know? Right. Um, but you know, I would probably do the same thing if I ran into some other entity. Yeah. Uh, I know where I am with Jesus. I totally set sail with him. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if I'm going down, I'm going down the ship with Jesus. I can't think of anybody else to go down the ship. E- even if everybody else in this world says, you're crazy. We finally disproved that a long time ago. That stuff never happened. It's like, mm-hmm. well, I made my commitment and I'm I'm sticking with it. I, w- I want to be committed to truth. But when you make something your cornerstone, mm-hmm. When you worship it, going back to my quote about that, which we do not critique, we worship. Mm -hmm. When you make that commitment, you got to really think long and hard about what you do on that commitment. Because when I made Jesus my commitment, that means he is the standard that I measure the veracity of everything else. Right. You have to have something. Yeah. As your square of veracity, something, science or whatever. And, and since I make him that, um, if it doesn't square with him, then I don't buy it. And so, you know, if I, now, if some alien came and had some message to me, um, if he didn't say that, then I would say, well, I've got good news for you. I know Jesus died for us humans. I don't know where you stand, but this is still good news anyway. I'm going to share with you. If if they said it was untrue or tried to fight it, then I would know who I was dealing with. Because mm. I know who the spirit is about who wants to get rid of that message. If they say we've never heard about this in our part of the universe, you know, I was asked that at one of those ancient of days conferences, whether I, what it would do to shake my faith or how I'd handle if there was a disclosure. Mm-hmm. And I said, on one side, just off the top of my head, on one side of the equation, I think about the four cherubim who are before God's throne, mm-hmm. the closest creatures to God's throne. And they have like a face of a man and an eagle and an ox. I forget the fourth one. I said, I don't see any of them having a face of what we'd call an alien gray or whatever. Right. So that leads me to believe that if they were somewhere in the universe, we would probably see their representation in heaven. But on the other hand, I say, God was not obligated to show us everything that's everywhere around his throne. Mm-hmm. He didn't have to show us because we've already proven in 2000 years how much we will cause all sorts of problems and mischief with what little bit truth he tells us. Right. We will screw up everything he says. So I don't blame him for being quiet about a whole lot of stuff. Like if he's got other people he's acting with, Mm. that's not saying he is, but I'm saying if I was him, I probably wouldn't tell us either because we would obsess over it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we need to expand the kingdom of heaven and find out how people can live in the eternal kingdom of unselfishness. And what we would do, we would obsess over what they look like. Right. I mean, that's just the way we are. So, I mean, their skin color. Tie, 
he has to tie his own hands because of how childish we are. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it, it all, but you know, I would treat an alien just like I would treat a new economic theory mm. or I would treat some kind of new idea about something or a psychological theory about who we are as humans or whatever. I'd say, Hey, I'll, I'll be open-minded. I'll consider it. But I did, I made Jesus my cornerstone. So that's what I'm going to be measuring. Yeah. Everybody's got to have a square. In fact, I even measure the apostles by it and the prophets. And, and I take that right from Ephesians too, because it says the household of God was built on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles with Christ, the chief cornerstone. Mm. So even the apostles and prophets, which by the way, there's a lot of that stuff in the Bible that's not mentioned in there. You don't see the law mentioned in there, a lot of other stuff, but the apostles and the prophets are what define our doctrine. Right. But even they have to be considered squared with Jesus. Yeah. So if, if I'm going to hold Paul and Peter to accountability of what Jesus says, why would I not hold an alien? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, that's why I don't I don't lose any sleep or what. Now, other people may lose their faith, but heck, they've lost their faith over oh, the, the, yeah. lost an election. <laughs> right, right, right. I mean, ridiculous yeah. stuff. And it's like, well, you know, and that, that gets back to what we talked about with Jesus saying, I never knew you. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm really thinking a lot of these people who, who buy a lot of airtime on religious TV channels, you know, and I don't say that gloating i'm just saying i'm afraid they're going to hear i never knew you mm -hmm. because i sure don't see a lot of jesus value they say the word jesus all the time right they say the word jesus i may even quote a few bible verses that are about prosperity or something or why they're better than some other person but but they don't uh they don't really know him right yeah. you know and i'm still i'm still i'm still getting to know him myself been yeah. 50 something years i've been pursuing this but um so I don't know. That's a long-winded answer about disclosure. I'm I'm just as intrigued as anybody else about it. I mean, you even got guys like Harry Reid, mm -hmm. the former Democratic uh, majority leader in the Senate, who who is saying it, it appears when I read from him that he think it's real. Mm -hmm. A lot of really amazing figures are coming up and saying this kind of stuff. Yeah, and I I would contend that nobody the, the you know gray alien doesn't have to walk onto the White House lawn for this to for them to pedal out whatever they need to pedal out with this stuff but right um, right you know well look a, at QAnon I mean QAnon is a great prototype of this yeah yeah it's what, what, what do we know about QAnon really not a dad blame thing yeah I think somebody else has sort of confirmed that he was this fellow who they're in the Philippines he and his dad that took over 8chan recent recent that, documentary pins case. him although well and the guy who started that board was mm -hmm. was also the one who said that who bought it from him, right? right. Because he actually broke it. The, the the gentleman who I don't know if he has cerebral palsy or something, but started that. He uh, he actually had the codes to go back in and find out who it was that was doing it because he set up the codes. Yeah, and he said, yeah, they created this for their own thing. So I don't know that for sure, but what I'm saying is, everybody's willing to go invade a Capitol building and go to jail for a long prison term. Off of somebody that could be no more than somebody sitting in a basement. Right. <laughs> and they needed no more proof than that. You sure. know, or like the guy who went in and ended up, I guess, going to jail for invading that pizza parlor in Washington. Because somebody he said knew for sure that there was a, a basement under there where Children Hillary Clinton was a witch. Held, yeah, 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 doing that, you know. So if they'll do those extreme measures over that, then you're right. They don't have to produce an alien gray. 
All you have to do is find somebody on a board saying they found it, and that's good enough for them. Right. Well, and in, in to that point, there's um the effects of it seem to be pretty benign. They the, this last year with uh, COVID, they've said a lot. The government has come out and and said and released a whole bunch of stuff about UFOs and all this. And most yeah. people were like, okay, when do we get to go back to the ball game? <laughs> You know, most right. people didn't right. care. So I right. think even culturally, people are pretty desensitized. It's if they announce it, sweet, just like the movies, cool, just don't hurt us. Uh, whatever comes out of it, great. You know, I think most people are just kind of in a in a, in a boat to just <laughs> be well, distracted. Well, that's sort of weird too. You know, I mean, you think about it. That's sort of disturbing in a way too. I mean, oh, it's yeah. glad they're not obsessed. But I mean, that would be the most earth shaking yeah of course discovery aside from you know god came to earth and died aside from that and resurrected that would be the biggest thing ever. and they're like meh yeah. whatever <laughs> i've got my favorite tv shows right i'm into sports you know i like video games and if that's whatever i mean that's disturbing in its own way yeah yeah that's any what other saying, generation yeah. in the world would have said wow this is pretty heavy this has not only spiritual, but philosophical mm -hmm. and every other kind of biological implications, yeah. all this stuff. And everybody else is like, man, <laughs> I just, you know, I like my favorite places that I go to online and uh, well, you yeah. all do whatever. And that's how we end up with the society the way it is. I was going to say, that's what social media has done to a lot of yeah. people's psychology is, is uh, okay, cool. Wow. That it'll be a story for a few days or whatever, but then what's next, you know, whatever yeah. is on to the next thing. Everything's ephemeral. And that's why, again, I wrote this as a book. I thought, well, maybe I'm, I, they think I'm too nuts or old fogey in this generation, but maybe somebody will find it in a yard sale because a <laughs> paper book that. is like a, uh, a penny, you know, you can't throw it away or it's like athlete's foot. It just keeps coming back. Yeah. So, you know, if it ends up on a on a yard sale table or used book thing or whatever, just so it may happen, maybe the force to the hands to get it, it'll strike a nerve. Mm -hmm. And they'll actually be a sad enough character that they have time to read a whole book <laughs> and, you know, a, a loner or whatever like that. But it might do something to put the pieces of the puzzle together. Yeah. I think you just called me a loner. Well... <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'm I'm just trying to get you to join a club with me. I, I just need to find people that I can associate with myself because I've lost so many. So. Of course, of course. Yeah. You know, well, I, sorry about that. No, it's okay. Um, well, I hope. Um, I, hey, by the way, I was flattered that you did read my book. Oh, no, no a lot problem. of people who have known me for decades and oh, just thought I was the bee's knees. It was too much for them to let me make my case through the entire book. I was asking too much of them. To actually look at it through. Yeah, well, so, well, I, these I'm are looking forward. I've read tons of their books, and they didn't do it. So I'm flattered that you did it, and you allowed me to make my case because I can't do it as well on video here. I'm sure all I've done is confuse people, and either <laughs> they think I'm a heretic or a lunatic. Well, if it makes any and difference, it may be both true. I don't know. If it makes any difference, a lot of it was making sense to me, and I read the book, and I and I realized that we were only able to really scrape at the surface of some of this stuff and you, you do a much better job of bridging everything together and and you go into detail i mean it's not for the faint of heart i will agree with you that it's it's meaty and and there were times when i was reading when i when i went okay did i what what did i just read for about a page and a half am i going to go back uh -huh. and reread that just to make sure i'm yeah. really soaking it in so it's, it is a lot of information i probably missed some things too because there were times where i tried to read pretty quickly to get through it um yeah. but but 
there were definitely enough parts to jump out at me and go, oh, that's interesting. And you kept that, it kept that train going. It doesn't get boring or yeah. anything. It's just, just a matter yeah. of how dense the information is. So, um, it's drinking from a fire hose. It, it is. Yeah. Particularly in the day and age that we live in, because now if you think this is sort of dense, you should go <laughs> read the Chesterton guys, read their stuff. Oh, I mean, yeah. I really have a hard time trying to keep a lot of my references. There was some Christian guy who blew the whistle and something we didn't talk about was the next generation guys after James Fifield, the apostle of the millionaires mm -hmm. that did spiritual mobilization and Christian economics. The next generation from the 50s to the 70s went hardcore fascist. Mm. The top religious leaders, if you go back in my book and look, I have a whole section on Gerald L.K. Smith right. and uh, Billy James Hargis. These guys were the top Christian radio, Christian media guys, and they were basically Nazis. Yeah, I mean, from, I mean, literally. You know, in, in their in their magazines like the Cross and the Flag, you know, one of them is a main suspect FBI with the of the uh, Little Rock bombings. Mm -hmm. We're involved in that, uh, potentially with the JFK assassination. I mean, all that stuff finds its way in this book. Yeah. Uh, as, as you've seen, you know, uh, including being in Dallas a few days before putting up posters of JFK with yeah. the crosshairs on his head. Yeah. And, yeah. And all this other stuff. And, and and these guys were tied to the German Bund, but they were the top Christian fundamentalist media mm. outlets. They were raising the most money. were on the hundreds and hundreds of radio stations, very influential, and they were cavorting with the Nazi Party. Yeah, and the silver shirts and others. Maybe because I didn't grow up in the in the environment, I was able to sort of take it all in. And wow, that that's crazy. It makes a lot of sense. Might yeah. be harder for someone that grew up in it to really get the fire hose. Um, yeah. all at once, but, uh, I do recommend people go check it out. Two masters and two gospels, volume one, the teaching of Jesus versus the leaven of the Pharisees in talk radio and cable news. And you're saying you, you're going to have part two and three or that's already, well, you had written how yeah, many books. They're almost all written. Okay. Uh, I've got uh, some, I've got a couple stacks of books in here. I got to dovetail. I frankly, I've been distracted by doing some extremely long winded blog posts okay. on, on what happened the last four months mm -hmm. to make sure it's documented before I forget and what the spiritual implications are of it. Right. Because it's a seminal event, just like nine one one was. Yeah. Uh, and so I got to hurry up and get that done. And then I'm going to go wrap up, um, volume two. It's got a bunch of very, very disturbing things in it too, about, cults that were running our top Christian ministries, household names, um, major ministries that were using their their airplanes for uh, relief for, you know, uh, victims of hurricanes. They were using it to run weapons for the Iran-Contras, mm -hmm. came out of the Iran-Contra hearings. Wow. Um, major cults that were running like top Christian universities, this kind of thing. Wow. And then volume three gets really weird. <laughs> it, it gets into it gets into our our most mainstream Christian works and how they were bringing in advisors for the future of the evangelical church that were steeped in like the most occult stuff that we do in America and known for in America and they were bringing the leaders of that in to provide guidance for our evangelical leaders. Wow. Well, so we'll that's look forward all. to that. And then with the Holy War Chronicles, they'll start winging those out. By the time I get stuff finished to write, it's like long history. The good part of it is, is that people try to calm down a little bit and they don't get so emotionally worked up. Like I write a lot of stuff about what happened in 911. Yeah. Well, it's been 20 years now. Yeah. 
So people calm down a little bit. Right. And they they forget a lot of the things that happen in rapid fashion. Yeah. That was never answered. Right, right. And it has important implications. Yeah. And I get into how um like how British intelligence founded the Muslim Brotherhood, for example. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I sort of take it from there. And okay. I, I go through a lot of household named Christians and what they were really up to and the hidden motives that you had to dig to find out. So Yeah. Seems like a lot it's of the not, same it, pattern over and over again. Just different people, is. different uh, time. Different shtick. Yeah. They got a different shtick, a different racket. Yeah. And they find that Christians don't do hardly any due diligence. <laughs> if it makes them feel good, that's good enough for them. Yeah. And so, and I, it's getting worse. Yeah. It's, it's getting really worse. I look back at this other stuff and I think, well, gee, that's not as preposterous as what I'm hearing today. <laughs> but it's our responsibility. Yeah. And, and the, the reason why I get so much heat from other Christians and even bother to do all this rather than do something that, that they'd like me over is that I really do believe in what I was raised as a kid that you go out and make believers. Mm-hmm. You share the gospel. And, you know, see adult people converting to follow Christ and they go get baptized and then they go get people. That's how I was raised. Mm-hmm. And all I see is Christians now telling everybody how much they hate them. Mm-hmm. I hate you for this. I hate you for this. You're terrible. I, you have bad motives and blah, blah, blah. And, I, and I'm thinking, you don't even care to want to share the gospel with these people. Mm-hmm. I mean, Paul had a lot of stuff. He dirt. He could have gone in a lot of people, but he swallowed it just to try to get them to accept the gospel. Mm-hmm. And I would sure like to see that we could do that because what will happen is once our churches are completely empty, they're going to look and they're going to blame just about everybody for it. You know, it's Christian persecution. The government did this. Well, everybody, the socialists or liberals or whatever, the only thing they won't blame is the thing that's in the mirror. Mm. And that's where most of the blame is. It's like you made yourself so incredibly ugly that if I weren't a Christian already, there's no reason why, judging from you and your words, that I would ever want to take a look at Christ. Mm. And I, that's what my goal is, is to see what my little tiny way I can help turn the ship because I'm, I'm having to turn it in myself. Right. And then, so I'm empathetic, you know, to the psyop that we've been exposed to for a generation. But that doesn't absolve us just because we're under psyop. It doesn't mean we don't have responsibility to the Lord. Right. We need to put our big boy pants on. And start, you know, being a little bit more discerning. Um, make sure everybody has to be vetted, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. And and compared to Jesus, and it's it's a mess. We, we, <laughs> you know, and it and it creates a lot of animosity with people. But I appreciate you giving me the time to make my convoluted case. <laughs> I wouldn't call it convoluted. I know you're trying to. Well, keep it, I go keep in a million humble. different directions, but there's a common theme. There is a common theme. And uh, yeah. where can people find? The book, the blog, just so people are aware. Well, I'm fully embraced with the capitalistic big business system. <laughs> I criticize it, but that's where I make my hundreds of millions of dollars, three dollars at a time from a book. Um, Got to pay, only pay two, Caesar. I'm only two grand in the hole so far, so I know this is my ticket to riches. But um, <laughs> yeah, a- Amazon has it. Okay. Um, um, Barnes and Noble has it. Um, Barnes and Noble, you can get a hardcover too. Okay. They have a fairly cheap, relatively cheap hardcover. Uh, ebooks, you can get an EPUB or you can get the Kindle version there. Um, the other normal haunts that have ebooks have it. Um, Ingram is now distributing it. Hopefully, they'll get it in libraries and other retail outlets. A uh, l- little bit pricier there, but there's a place called Book Baby that if you like ebooks, they'll give you all three versions, uh, including a PDF. 
And if you do that, uh, I'll send you a little extra something I wrote. Leave your email there. Cool. But, you know, the other normal places you can get it. Yeah, I've even found it at, at uh, Kmart and uh, Kmart, but Walmart and Kroger. And wow. it just percolates all sorts of different places. So cool. I would just be honored if people can invest the time. You know, take it to the toilet with you. Read it five pages at a time. Perfect. You know, if if anything else, or, you know, if you're commuting, you know, if you're riding on Uber or something like that, um, you you would honor me even if you read it and say, well, this is just total ridiculousness. (laughs) And then you can let me know why it is and maybe help me. But I, I just want us to get away from the ridiculous in your face kind of shouting match stuff. And let's just start back to thinking again. Amen. 